clubhouse. Our family is condemned to journey. Journey from Ireland to escape poverty. Journey from Tennessee to escape war. Journey from Kentucky to offer salvation. Journey from Africa to seek vengeance. Montana is the magnet now. It is the next journey. And for my young brother, it will be his last. Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1923, a prequel series to Yellowstone. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode five of season one of 1923, Ghost of Zabrina. Tonight's episode was written by Taylor Sheridan, as these all are, and was directed by Guy Furland. This is Guy's first time directing in 1923, but previously directed episodes of Tulsa King, Mayor of Kingstown, and Yellowstone. So he's definitely one of Taylor's proven like episode directors. Yeah, clearly a favorite. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Yellowstone 1923, 1883, and Four Sixes discussion and news group to discuss 1923 and the whole universe of Yellowstone shows. We're racking them up now, Mike. There's so many. There's so many. We haven't even gotten to the Four Sixes yet. Or the news that came out uh, right basically as we were getting ready to record this, that season two for 1923 is a go. Now, when the show was originally... (laughs) Confusing. When the show was originally pitched, right before... Before it premiered, it was said that it was going to be two eight-episode seasons. So I think everyone thought that the story was going to continue, but also taking that with a grain of salt, because 1883 was supposed to have a second season, and that turned into kind of 1923, and 1883 season two got scrapped, and we ended up with, well, 1932, and then 1932 was rebranded into 1923, and that's how we find ourselves here. So then this week putting out a formal press release saying it's been renewed for season two. It's all very head-scratching. I know everyone's excited. (laughs) We're very excited, but I just want to temper expectations. My gut is that maybe we get a season two when we continue the Jacob, Kara, Spencer, Jack, Dutton storyline. But I think it's just as even money that we go get like a 1963 series. I think it would be it would make sense to move another generation. It would make sense to move another 20 years and get into the 1940s. We did a 40 year jump from 1883 to here. That's why I was using 63, because we also have Kennedy assassination. You've got the really the start of Vietnam. No, though, (laughs) it feels like this is like the pioneer stuff. We should still be working in that that time frame. Earlier, it's going to be all World War Two, though. I mean, maybe that's interesting. Oh, I know. I know. I don't know. But who knows? Guys, the point is, we don't know. Temper your expectations. Don't get too excited. Prepare for the worst. Hope for the best. But that way, that way you're never let down or, you know, experience heartbreak. Uh, just a reminder that we assume you have watched this episode. We will be spoiling things. We're going to be talking about all of it. It's not a recap episode. We don't go step by step, but we talk about the characters, the themes. In that way, we end up talking about basically the whole episode. So pause, 
go watch episode five, then come back and take a listen to us. Unless you don't care about spoilers and you just want to listen to us. Then hi. <laughs> hi, you. We see you. We, see we hope you. you're enjoying just listening to us, not watching the episodes, you little wacky. That's it. Just got your earbuds in, lights off. You're just a little PCH weirdo hanging out with us, not watching the shows. <laughs> we see you and we appreciate you. All of our little monsters. We love all of you. It's all good. Come have snacks with us. That's right. We <laughs> always have snacks in the clubhouse. That's the number one rule. Oh, Lady Gaga. We're, we're, we're going to take Lady Gaga's name for all of you. <laughs> Our little <laughs> Yellowstone monsters. That's oh, it. I love it. Uh, let's go over some uh, general thoughts. Well, this episode was very interesting. I, I think it did a lot to catch us up following a month off, right? Let's not forget, we've been away from the story from a month. At the end of episode four, you have Spencer finding out about what had happened back at the ranch. And that whole thing, you have the fact that Jacob survived the night. The the Duttons are, are rocked back on their heels at the end of episode four. With episode five, they had to kind of catch you up. They had to catch you up in story, but they also had to kind of catch you up in time and start moving the plot forward. We're, we're solidly entering winter uh, in this episode. Do you know, Caroline? I, feel free to check me on this. But I think other than the flashbacks in Yellowstone to the Tim McGraw era of 1883. It was actually a flashback to 1893, the Mm -hmm. episode where he gets shot. Mm -hmm. um, That is taking place at the start, I think, of the winter time. And we know Margaret eventually dies in that same 1893 winter storm. We know that from the first episode of 1923. We have never seen winter displayed in any of the Yellowstone shows, it, it's it's often talked about in main in mainline Yellowstone. We never see winter in Montana in Yellowstone, and I. I, I but Ooh, it feels like we're getting true. into it. It feels like we're getting into it here. I hope they actually show it to us a little bit. You know, like I hope they really get into the winter time because I don't know. I don't know. I feel it I'm feels feeling another time jump. Are you feeling another time jump coming? Because I am. I mean, we could get at the end of the episode with the conversation between Kara and Don Whitfield, the Timothy Dutton character. Mm-hmm. It, at the end of that conversation, when he gets back in the car and he says to Banner, let her go through a winter without her husband. By springtime, she'll be begging to sell to me. Makes me feel like the Banner Whitfield clan, anyway, is not going to make a move on the ranch. So it gives you time to get Spencer there. So it seems like it seems like the ranch anyway, as far as its safety, as far as people coming along and trying to take it, feels like it's going to be safe through the winter based on that comment, which is great because they need to give Spencer and Alex time to get to Montana, which at the start of their journey is not going great as the way this episode ends. A time jump, maybe a time jump, but we have to resolve what happened with Alex and Spencer pretty quickly. I, I don't think anyone thinks, at least I don't think anyone thinks Spencer's dead. Maybe Alex, but I don't think so. I think they're going to miraculously survive their capsizing boat. But it would be weird if they just time jumped and they're in Montana. They're, we're not done with that side of the journey, I don't think. I don't know that we're done with that side of the journey, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was like some cold open kind of montage quickness about it. And the idea of actually getting to Montana happens much quicker. And that time, it, it just, it allows like Jacob to heal more. It allows, you know, the Elizabeth Jack, you know, storyline to move forward more without, we don't actually need to see it. You know, we don't, we don't need to see her get more pregnant. We don't need to see day in and day out of Jacob walking with his cane. Like we could get it, you know, 
if they did move forward a couple months, we'd get it. We'd understand what they were doing. Yeah, I still want to see. I want to see this ranch in winter, though. I want to see this ranch I under three feet of snow. Get it, Mike, I just don't yeah. know you're going to get it. With the snow falling in this episode, it made me hopeful for the first time. Because and here's why: because narratively, the show has taught us in winter in Montana, people die. Oh, yeah. It's the roughest time. James and Margaret die in the winter. And the only time it's ever been depicted or talked about, think back to the letters that Alex reads to Spencer in episode four. She's reading a letter from Kara that says, we've had the worst snow this year. It's the worst snow since 1893, which we all know is when Margaret and James died. So they've hinted at snow. They've hinted at winter already in this show. The snow falling at the end of this episode. I think we are going to get winter, and I think that's going to foretell another major character death or okay. or calamity. One, one I way mean, or it definitely, it's the toughest time. I mean, I know they've repeated that several times where, you know, the winter is like basically only the strong survive, you know, like the, the idea that Kara couldn't even handle this entire ranch situation, even with all the help that she would have without her husband, because it's just that brutal. They owe us showing us a little bit of this horrible, horrible environment because they've told us plenty about it. Let's, uh, Elsa is back, uh, in episode five here and she gives us a, a voiceover at the beginning. It spans several minutes, but I, I cut it down so you just get her, her voiceover. Let's take a listen. Just the catch up. Again, part of what we're doing here tonight is also catching you up and kicking the rust off the tires of, of 1923. So let's, let's kick some rust off together with Elsa. Life had become a series of melancholy routines. like a defeated stag that had retreated deep into the forest to tend its wounds. Our family had lost itself in the tedium of healing. The hobby of watching young love had been robbed from her. Jack choosing to spend his evenings patrolling headquarters, choosing revenge over passion. A billion years of life led to my family standing in the mountains of Montana. And only four Duttons remained on this earth to survive another generation. We were going extinct. Wouldn't be Elsa if it wasn't bleak as hell. Just the montage that's playing out while you're listening to her talk, watching Kara scrub the wounds on Jacob's back as he grimaces in pain, watching it, Emma suffer. It made suffer. me, like, physically cringed watching that. Well, it reminded me of the wire brush scene with Tiona in the... Oh, yeah. It, it, it really reminded me of that, and it made... It, the PTSD of that made me cringe even more. And just watching Harrison Ford's face kind of grimace and wince with every with every touch. It's a lot. I mean, watching, I, I think, you know, right off the bat, we have to say, we, I think we called it. We said Emma wasn't long for this world. I think we even said it was probably going to be this episode where she killed herself. But we definitely predicted that she was going to kill herself at some point. And I think they did a great job and an efficient job in showing that. The canatotic state, she's tending John's grave, right? She's patting the earth, just making busy work, really just trying to be close to him. You get the feeling. But the catatonic look she has at the dinner table as the camera pans across from Jack and uh, Elizabeth uh, and you see her just sitting there just staring straight ahead she's already checked out the only thing left to do is end her physical 
presence on Earth. She's already gone. It's so unfortunate. I was thinking a little bit about, you know, the amount of suicides that we've actually had on the show. This is the third, I believe. And I think that there's more coming. Yeah. The show is doing a great job in reminding you how rough hard and bleak this life is. And when Kara says to Elizabeth, when she announces they're having the baby towards the end of the episode, she says, that's the first good news that these years have heard in months. She's not exaggerating. That is not hyperbole. These people live lives where they don't hear good news literally for months and months at a time. They're just eking out existence day in and day out. The, which what is Elsa called the tedium of healing? I felt that line when she says that. Watching the images that we're watching, even watching Jack's face, who looks like he literally was force fed lemons, the the stink face, the anger written across his face. Everyone here is in pain. Everyone here is broken. Everyone here is hurt. And we're just watching it play out. And you have to get up every morning and you have to repeat the same bullshit every day. And it doesn't get better. It just stays. It's it's the worst kind of Groundhog's Day. I feel like there's some message we're supposed to be getting from the suicides that I'm not I don't have my arms around yet, but I feel like there's something there. I don't know if it's about, you know, the lack of mental health care. I don't know if it's about grief and love and loss and how overpowering that can be, whether it be Claire with her daughter or whether it be, you know, Shay wanting to be back with his wife, all these things like there's all these, these there's these parts of it. And I, and I really, for some reason, I kind of feel like I need to get my arms around it because I feel like Taylor's trying to tell us something and I, and I want to like hear this message clearly. The sheer weight of the grief I mean, it's overwhelming as an as an audience member to see these people. But I can't imagine real life circumstances where you like really saw your husband just get like shot with like a machine gun. Like that's it's all so out there, you know, like like, you know, it's it's hard to relate to that. I'm like, I'm really trying to. But 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 is it, though? Because, okay, the maybe, machine gun, my husband. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's not machine gun my husband, but how many people have to watch their their partner, their love of. 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years die. Of course, everyone. I the, mean, that somebody's going to watch the, the other one die, right? right? With the, loss, sure. the loss of a daughter, in Claire's case, with Abel in 1883. Shay, not having lost his wife and made a promise to her, let, let, let's talk about trying to get our arms around it. I would posit that the message here is people often think about suicide as a cowardice act. It's often talked about as a cowardice act. It is. It has a stigma of being a cowardice act. The three suicides that we've now seen in the show, none of them are depicted as cowardice acts. I think Shay and James even have a conversation about that exact thing, that it actually took courage for Claire to take her life over her daughter's grave. Shay himself, knowing that he was also probably going to end that same way. I think part of this is more about the end of a journey. Claire had no family left. Her journey was done. Her only reason for living was her daughter, and her daughter was no more, and so her journey was ended. Shay, his journey was to get to the beach so that he could show his wife through his eyes. His journey ended. Emma, this is tougher. I mean, you're not going well, to tie this one up with a bow. Okay, well, let's listen. Let's listen to the last words Emma says, because on top of what she says here, she also takes a really deep swipe cut at Kara on her way out. Let's take a listen. We've sent for the doctor. What for? For you. 
I'll not spoon feed and bathe too, Emma. You have a child. He needs you. He's a man who has a woman. He has no need for me. Sons outgrow their mothers now, do they? Become a mother before you lecture me about sons and what they do. I mean, that is a supremely amazing Dutton woman line because that's the type of kind of like, I don't know, like spitting fire kind of comment that they make. But in real life, again, relatability wise, you have a son. I have a son. Do you really think you would take that tact? No, but I also am not at uh, any kind of point. And one, I don't live in this life where your life expectancy probably she's already probably at or nearing her life expectancy yes they have shown Kara dutton and jacob dutton living well into their 70s 80s uh, margaret and james we talked about when we did 1883 were probably at the top end of their life expectancy emma here john too were probably at the same age as, as john john's parents were in 1883 she's at the top of her life expectancy her only reason for living her only reason no she loved her son listen for sure i think she loved her son but she suffered the loss of the miscarried child, which from the letter sounds like she really never got over again. It sounded like she was ready to check out then and there. She continued because John was by her side. John never left her. John is the reason she kept going. Read back the letter again. I can play the clip. It was John keeping her going. She already had a foot out the door, however long ago it was when she miscarried the second child that they had. Now John is gone. What does she have left? From her point of view, I don't agree with it. If I'm her, I'm thinking, well, Jack and Elizabeth are going to have a, a baby, and maybe I can invest my life in, in being a grandmother. But from her point of view, with what John represented in her life, I think it's the end of her journey, as she understands it. Think about what she has done. She has interacted with no one. This conversation with Emma is the first time I think we've heard Emma speak since John was gunned down in that field. Other Maybe she had some interaction with the ranch hands, with the burying and stuff. She has had no substantive conversation with any character on the show, any main character on the show, since John was gunned down. Her journey is done as she sees it. And I think that's the recurring theme in Yellowstone when it comes to suicide. It is not a cowardice act, as these people perceive it. It is, it is the end of the journey, and why continue on? Life is too hard just to keep muddling through the tedium of life, the tedium of healing. There is no healing. She wouldn't have healed without John. She's done. I wonder if she knew about Elizabeth at all, um, you know, being pregnant. I wonder I if she... I can't imagine she did. Or even was paying any attention, you know, to that fact. Um, I want to think that she wouldn't have wanted to leave if she knew there was going to be a grandbaby and hope. stuff like that. I would hope. But, but you know, but we called it a long time ago. You know, as soon as Emma came on the screen, I was like, man, she is exhausted. She's worn out. This is a woman who's just done already. Well, before John died, you know, she was already really tired. So I'm sorry to see her go as a character. I think there could have been more there. A lot is now resting on on Jacob and, and Kara in terms of just like, man, there's just very few Duttons left. Oh, well, that, I mean, Elsa's voice, there's only four Duttons left on Earth, which is interesting. I'm, let's see which Dutton she's counting. She's counting... I gotta she, think it's just Jack, Spencer, Kara, and Jacob. I, I think that's what she's counting, right? She's not counting, because at this point, as far as Elsa's voiceover goes, Elizabeth is not actually married yet. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think those are the four. There's a lot on the shoulders of Kara and Jacob. And by extension, that means Kara, because Jacob is in no condition right now to have anything on his shoulders. So that's what makes, I think, her final line there, become a mother before you tell me about what sons do. That's why that cuts so deep is because to Kara, John and Spencer were her sons. They regard her as that, I think, at least John seemed to, but she certainly, whether, no matter how they felt about her, I think you get the impression John, uh, Kara and Jacob both definitely regarded the boys as their boys having, having raised them for so long. So that is a really that is actually a claire-esque line coming out of emma here at the end and one out of grief and anger i'm sure if all things were right i don't think she would have said something so horrifically mean but you look at the look at kara's face she's wounded i mean she she leaves she doesn't have a response it's a cruel thing to say to anybody. That's a really nasty thing to say. And I understand that, you know, she's feeling attacked. Kara is being like, look, you know, she's essentially calling her a baby, you right. know, and that's all hard to take. Do you think that Kara's remark about like, I don't have time to basically be like spoon feeding two of you. Did that push Emma over the edge or was no. she doing this anyway? She was going to do it anyway. She was just waiting, I think, for nighttime to do it. Maybe she needed a final conversation to make it now, but I think it was just a question of when. It was never a question of if. We knew that episodes ago. Oh, yeah. She was a dead, I, I she really was a dead woman she was, walking. Yeah. I really thought she was hanging around the cemetery just, just sizing it up. Yeah, or or just, just the way Claire shot herself over Abel's grave that Emma would do the same over John's or something like mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. Uh, let's depict some timeline stuff because that's always a fun part of covering any Yellowstone <laughs> show. The show goes out of its way in the graveyard to show us John's grave marking. We know he was born June 23rd, 1877, and it is marked that he died on August 28th, 1923. Now, that doesn't really make sense. Because at the end of last episode, episode four, when Spencer hears the letter from Kara via Alex saying your brother has been killed, by the time you get this, your uncle will probably be dead. Your legacy is under attack. You need to come home. The day John is killed, it's sent in the mail by Zane the day after John is killed and Jacob is shot. Spencer asks Alex, how long ago was that letter written? Alex says three months. So if it's three months from August 28th or August 29th, when it got in the mail, the postmark would be August 29th, September 29th, October 29th, November 29th. It should have been the end of November when Alex and Spencer are getting that letter and reading it for the first time. Three months. We know in this episode that it's actually, at least in Africa, only the end of October, not the end of November, because when they go to book passage on the first ship... The man says the embarking date, the embarkation date when you'll leave is November 11th, which is funny. That's Veterans Day. Spencer says that's three weeks away. I can't wait. So three weeks from November 11th, three weeks prior is the last full week of October. I checked, actually. November 11th in, in, in 1923 was actually a Sunday. Uh, so the last full week, the Sunday of the last full week of October is where they are when they're going to look for passage. 
That doesn't make any sense. Why show us these dates if you're not going to line them up correctly? I know it's nitpicky. It doesn't actually affect the story really in any way, shape, or form. Well, here's how it does affect the story. They're trying to create urgency, and they're trying to create a time frame. Like, you need to get back, and you need to hurry. And now we have this other portion where Timothy and Banner are talking about, let's let them go through the winter. Timing matters. Yeah. Yeah, it matters right. in this show because if we weren't worried about like seasonal conditions and such that the Dedettons are going to have to deal with. And then now we've got this ticking time clock on when the when the bad guys are going to come and finally attack, which is going to be after winter in the spring. We got to know when is Spencer showing up and you got to get those months, at least the months, you know, pretty close to right. You know, I mean, yeah, you're you're talking of being a full month off. You're talking about you're talking about being you're talking about actually a couple of days short of the end of August. So you're actually talking about a couple of days short of being two months versus saying that it was written three months ago. It's just crazy. And not only though, but remember, it's three months ago. It was written when they're sitting on the beach. Right. I, I don't I do not think that they made it to that beach and then where they're actually figuring out their ships and they're talking about the timeline i don't think that was the same day no. you know obviously it was some amount of time between well, they had the to beach. find a boat to take them from zanzibar yes. right they had that friend who's taking them who of gets course. Them and free. so time has so. even passed even more right. since they supposedly read the letter so yeah i don't really understand why this they is a thing right, they in the didn't... Yellowstone universe. I don't know why they aren't keeping track of the dates. And then I don't know why they go through such painstaking efforts to put specific dates in there. Right. And then they don't follow those. Right. They could have and should have easily made John's death date, not August 28th, but June 28th. If they, they had just said August it still doesn't work because it, it still puts them into November no, okay. any time in August. So put All it right, at the end of up. put it at the end of June, and that gives you leeway for three months of the letter time plus traveling, and it still allows winter to be setting in in Montana because we are getting into November. Now here's another wrinkle I'm going to add onto the timeline thing. In the beginning of the episode, Kara goes to the post office. She's looking for a cable. Uh, she's on a, a journey of her own. Uh, looks like she has been going to the post office semi-frequently looking for a response from Spencer. There's none there, but she picks up the newspaper. It's an edition of the Livingston Examiner, Montana's best weekly newspaper established 1904. The headline is Electricity is Coming to Paradise Valley. There's an article. Here's a little gargle. I did some blowing up on it. In the article, it says the average monthly electric bill on 3,303 ranges, which are oven ranges, on Montana Power Company system, $3.45. I wish my electric bill was only $3.45 a month. <laughs> That's fantastic. Right? And there's another part of the article. You can't see the whole thing. You can only really see the tops of the different articles. That The whole front page was about electricity and how it's the new thing. There are some buzzwords about how electric appliances are labor-saving appliances. That's a quote, labor-saving appliances. And there's also a line in there that electricity is cheaper than coal or oil to heat your home and to do your cooking. All, all sorts of uh, good things about electricity on the front page of the Livingston Examiner, which I like Kara saying, uh, couldn't come fast enough, which is a nice callback to when things were simpler in episode four, the beginning of episode four, when they're being pitched the washing machine and the refrigerator. That's all one way of saying in the upper left hand corner of the Livingston Examiner paper she has, it says volume 11. Now, volume and newspapers, that can be categorized in any kind of many ways. But given time framing, it makes me think volume 11 is a reference to the 11th month, November. 
So because I, I looked very carefully, they were very specific to not put a date or a date range on the newspaper. But it does say volume 11 to the left of Montana's best weekly news uh, news since 1904. Um, so I'm thinking volume 11, November. So I think in the ranch, it is November now. I think we're still not one for one time frame to where Alex and Spencer are and to the ranch. I think we are into November on the ranch. But that still doesn't explain the discrepancy well, in Africa. It but that's interesting because, see, because it's Western Montana's best weekly news. Right. I actually don't take volume 11 to mean November. I would take it to mean we're like 11 weeks into the year. I, that was the very first time you look at my notes. Like extra annoying. Right. <laughs> you're like, wait a minute. When is it? That was my literal very first note on my notes. Well, yeah, because why I, I, would you have a weekly paper? What would we say? Like a that documented be- as a monthly date. So if a volume pertains to an edition, right, that would put it in being like in the end of March of 1923, which obviously that can't be possible. But so but newspapers do they do collect their volumes in weird styles. Every newspaper has its own volume collecting thing that it follows. So my guess is, and this is just me extrapolating, that they consider the November month, the the four weekly papers that'll come in November as part of volume eleven. I believe you, and I and I accept. It doesn't make sense though. It, they could just put they could just a put little, a date on it, right? Yeah. yeah. But, so the, why show us that headstone when you know that the timeline doesn't work with when the letter supposedly was gotten in Africa? But you specifically put timestamps on stuff that's happening in Africa. If they had just if right. they had if well, they, why have why have Spencer say how long ago was that letter written? <laughs> like we didn't even have to have that comment then, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I like these details. These are the details that reward the viewer for watching it three times and and taking these kinds of notes and having these conversations for the last 10 minutes. But get them right. If you're going to do that, if you're going to reward the viewer, otherwise you're going to have just pissed off grumpy people that just sit there and complain. I have already been told that I complain incessantly about the show, which is not true. But (laughs) it's stuff like this is this is just a softball. They could have fixed this in any number of ways. You could have made his death date the end of June. There was nothing conflicting that beforehand. You could have you could have had Spencer say that the ship was leaving December 11th instead of November 11th and that'd be three weeks away and that works timeline you could have fixed this any number of ways so just silly just silly show <laughs> end of my rant I'm putting my soapbox away I'm stepping down <sighs> boy let's talk about episode theme I've already used the buzzword a couple of times journeys journeys is the theme of the show in a lot of ways and i think all of yellowstone shows people are on a metaphorical jury journey if not a literal journey we talked about via suicide the journeys or the end of journeys of people we have kara in this episode taking journeys back and forth to the post office it feels like the only place that maybe kara is going these days is back and forth to the post office on that journey and the people she meets along the way but then we have this voiceover from Elsa talking about Spencer and the Dutton's family's journeys being condemned to journeys. Let's take a listen. Our family is condemned to journey. Journey from Ireland to escape poverty. Journey from Tennessee to escape war. Journey from Kentucky to offer salvation. Journey from Africa to seek vengeance. Montana is the magnet now. It is the next journey. 
And for my young brother, it will be his last. Two interesting things from there. One is the reference, uh, the journey from Kentucky to offer salvation. So is that confirmation or is that an inference that Jacob and Kara come from Kentucky? Because we know James and Margaret and their side of the family were traveling from Tennessee. So, I'm going to say yes, that seems right. Right, because they were the offer salvation. They were supposed to get there before Margaret was dead and the boys were dead. And right. Margaret was dead, but they were the salvation for the boys. <laughs> Margaret was dead, yes. <laughs> but we got to take the last part of that clip, though. Journey from Africa on a, on a journey of vengeance. For my brother, this will be his final journey. Bum, bum, bum. Is this prophecy? Is Spencer slated to die? Or does she just mean that after here... Think back to episode one when he's sleeping on the train and the conductor wakes him and he always kills the guy and he says, it's just a stop. I don't have a final destination. Well, it feels like Montana is going to be Spencer's final destination if we're being able to take Elsa's words here at a face value. That feels exactly right. I mean, it feels like when you say like this is his final journey, we do say like, dun, dun, dun. but also you could think because he's settling down with his family and going to raise children on the ranch. Like it doesn't have to be a dun, dun, dun. you know, it just right. makes it sound like final journey because, you know, it sounds like death. But right. I think it just means it's the end of him wandering the earth, you know, trying to find a purpose. I think he's going to have a purpose now. I think people are going to be pairing that with the first episode voiceover uh, from Elsa talking about how only one brother would make it through to guide the family through the through the generations, through the depression, through the great through World War Two, through Vietnam and, and, and the rest. But I think that we thought it would have been Spencer that she was talking about. And again, I still think that's probably right. I think you're right. I think he's just going to be settling down that the same way that he says the vacation is over and Alex tells him, but the adventure is just beginning. I think the adventure is just beginning, but the adventure is going to be Montana based. You know, may, yeah, maybe it's going to be protecting the ranch and trying right. to keep things going. Some progress. Let's, let's talk about journeys and final journeys. And Elsa doesn't mention Alex in that, but I, I wanted to play the beginning of this clip from uh, episode two, I believe it was. I have been placed on a train with a destination not of my choosing, and I have no means of stopping. He's kind, Alex. Well, she certainly has placed herself on a destination of her own choosing now. Whether she realizes that it's going to be the end of her journey, it doesn't sound like she knows that yet. Maybe only Elsa knows that. Spencer probably doesn't know that either. When we think back to the early days of talking about Spencer and talking about Alex, how both of them were concerned about journeys and destinations. And now we have this voiceover from Elsa telling us Montana is where their journey ends, is where the, it is the final journey. It's an interesting bookend on this part of their story, and they don't even realize it. They don't even realize it, Mike. And that assumes that Alex survives the capsizing of the boat. I mean, again, I think we, I think we're all agreed Spencer makes it. I, I really think that Alex makes it, but at this point, at the end you of episode, you want five, Alex to make it. But does it suit the story, or does, or does the story that Spencer's got to come heartbroken and full angry. of revenge and hate, and join Jack in the revenge brother uh, feel? Uh, you're sounding like Elizabeth Strafford. Hold I'm on. Just saying. And I'm going to clarify this right this second. I understand that Spencer is Uncle Spencer to Jack and not his brother. I don't want any comments on that. I'm saying they're revenge brothers, not brothers. You're using it like in the blood brother sense. Yes, but I want to be clear because I don't want comments on that. 
Let's listen to Elizabeth's feelings about hatred consuming you. This isn't what you promised. You haven't lost anything that I haven't lost. I'm an orphan too now. And all we have is each other and I don't even have that. Our wedding day came and went with no mention of it. We don't, we don't speak. You don't, you don't even touch me. I've got just as much right to hate the man as you do, but I don't. Because hate takes your whole heart. Every bit of it. Hate leaves no room for love. I choose not to hate him so that there is room in my heart for you. If you won't do the same for me, take me to town. Send me home, Jack. This is the first of two women in this episode putting their man in line and telling them to make right choices or you will lose me. Choose me now? Never. I, I mean, she's right, though, right? The Jack we see in this episode oh, yes. is 100%, 100% consumed with anger and vengeance and bloodlust. There's Jack is the character in the show that is the only real funny one as far as he sees it, joking around. Listen, think back to when he tried to ride the cow, right, in the letter, right. and he almost died by drowning. Like, he's the goofy one. He's the silly one. That's not That Jack is not present in this episode. Grief is such a terrible thing because, you know... In discussing this and thinking about it is such a great loss to have lost both John and to have lost Emma, right? But for Jack, he that, that's not it. You know, he also lo- he's losing Elizabeth in this in the process. Elizabeth's losing Jack in the process beyond losing her father and losing, you know, her mom leaving. There's such like a ripple effect with grief that has to be like really underscored with this because there's going to be so many things that happen from here on out that is really just that ripple effect from the shooting and from those initial deaths that we're seeing, including the deaths of James and Margaret, because now it's so easy to see how Spencer's personality is like. I can't imagine what he lived through to have had his father die and then have his mother be, you know, found in a, in a snowdrift somewhere. Can you imagine what that guy's little, little guy's life was like, no. you know, when he's trying to grow up with John and Margaret and, and just everything that he went through then to go to war and have to deal with all that PTSD, like the ripple effect of grief and pain and sadness and how it all seems to culminate in anger, but also like bust up every living relationship you have you know it's not you didn't just lose the person who died you're losing all the people around you because you can't even have healthy relationships you know and we see that obviously with spencer trying you know try to trying to leave alex and i i'm saying that jack's like quiet quitting elizabeth right now and and has to they do need to be called on it like what are you trying to do what are you trying to shirk here who are you trying to leave behind there's a quote in the Elsa's voiceover we played before where she says that he's riding out to guard the headquarters and he's choosing choosing anger. I don't even know what that means, the headquarters. I assume he meant the ranch. He's patrolling the ranch, but choosing anger over passion. Remember, and these are the two. Remember, think, think back to the racing horses, racing it to the barn. Zane is the, the safety officer was like, slow your horses down. We don't run at the barn. But it was Jack running, racing his horse that set everyone else to racing their horse because he wanted to get to Elizabeth to love on her. Remember, her like 
like a goofball falling off of the moving carriage and him riding his horse to to go meet her um so they can embrace each other like that's gone here it's not until she he follows her outside and she's not done yet i didn't pull the clip but she says look at this prison look at this big giant prison you have you have made us in and he says it's not a prison she says it is the way you're doing is making it a prison and i thought that was an interesting line because i think that is actually a theme that's in mainline yellowstone too listen to Casey talk about the ranch and the way his father runs it. The way Beth talks about the ranch, she hates the ranch and all it represents. She's only there because she loves her father, but she would sell the goddamn thing the next day he was dead because she hates it so much. The Dutton kids feel like they are in a giant, beautiful prison, the same way Elizabeth feels it. It's an interesting recurring theme about what are Duttons willing to give up in order to protect this land. Well, the answer seems to be over and over again, they're willing to give up all of their relationships to protect this land. And if you don't have your family, if you don't have your relationships, what is the land even worth? Well, and I definitely think it goes back to, you know, Elsa's quote about how there's only four left. Like, there's not, you know, this never-ending supply. You have to make more Duttons. And you're right. Like, because of the way that they have to work the land and sacrifice so much, how could you grow up in that environment? It's one thing to show up as an adult, which is James, Margaret, Kara, Jacob, show up as an adult and be like, okay, we're going to like, you know, be gritty. We're going to get this done. But imagine being born into this and growing up like this. How could you not be resentful when you go into town or when you just hear about other places or things where you're like, this is for the birds. Like, why are we scrounging so hard when we could be elsewhere? It would be very hard to see the value of the land in comparison to all that you're giving up, you know? And that's who these people are. Spencer, Jack, even really John. But John, I think, was older enough to really be kind of in the initial four. You know, I think that there's a lot there that that they are very angry, I think, at how much that they have to give up in order to be protectors of this land. Yeah, I think until now, Jack's never really questioned it, right? Think back to the conversations with his father when they were they were talking about the wedding, right? And, and the idea of you push the wedding back because the herd comes first. Jack was the one lead. Jack was like, that's what a rancher does. That has to come before getting married. So- yeah, but you're looking at a you're looking at a man with two living Two living parents who grew up in a big old cabin there, right? And who you get the idea, at least with Emma, that she is, he he was kind of like a wild kid, you know, and that she was like exhausted by him and by having to try to raise him and everything. I still think that the majority of the people who would, who would grow up in this, just like Elizabeth feels like it's prison, would feel like there's too much I'm giving up. I'm, this does not have to be this way. And so many people before me chose this life for me. I didn't choose this. And now I'm just being born into like a security guard uniform where I'm expected now for the rest of my life to protect an asset that generations ago someone decided was important for me to have to do. That is a big burden to put on someone's shoulders. Well, you see the burden in Jack's face, too. I and mean, we talked a lot about the anger that's on itched, etched on his face in this episode. But let's back it up to the first sign that we see Jack really by himself. 
they're at the uh, livestock yard and they're selling more of the heifers. This is all part of Jacob's plan that he's discussed with Zane that they were going to start. They were going to sell cows to get money to pay off the bank to keep the bank off their back, so no one came out looking or asking questions. So they're selling more, and there's this whole conversation with the buyer talking about a couple of things. One, if you keep selling your heifers, you're not going to have much of a you're not going to have much to cowboy over, which comes up a couple of times in this episode. How how much can you sell before you have nothing left to ranch? But also there's a line there about how some of the ranch hands had run off and joined the Straffords to go do cowboy movies in the in Hollywood. And Jack looks a little angry, but he also looks a little mixed emotion, a little wistful at that. This idea that these these ranch hands are going off and living some up jump lifestyle out in Hollywood. And here he is selling sell literally selling his family's assets to pay the bank so they can survive. It's such a strange time in terms of the luxury that exists in the world and what you could be doing versus the rugged, pretty primitive life that they're living on the ranch. And so it would almost make your brain like explode to be like, wait a minute. (laughs) I just learned about electricity yesterday. And also what? (laughs) There are people playing cowboys on film. What? (laughs) He didn't know about the speakeasy in town, in his town and in the town. And he was like, ah, how did I miss this? There's got to be a huge part of him that feels like you're missing out you know the rest of the world is existing there's also betrayal there though let's listen to this clip that he has with jacob which is one of my is one of my favorite harrison ford scenes on the show i just like how he starts it but let's take a listen to jacob and jack look how angry you are bruce you're sold out straffords are gone my parents gone you goddamn right i'm angry you can't win No leader. Can't win without a leader. I can lead him. I won't follow you. Not yet. This must be done right, or we lose everything. You got old. I've been old, son. Guess I'm gonna have to learn how to shoot left-handed. Fuckers got me pretty good, huh? We're gonna get the Mac. You have to watch the scene, and uh, I want to give some credit to Darren Mann, who who plays Jack in the show. He's doing great work here. He's holding back, wanting to just ball like a kid. He 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 is hurt. He is betrayed. He he feels like he has to be the man of the family, but he doesn't really know how to do that. He's just kind of emulating what he had seen his father do and what he had seen his uncle do. But, but listen to how he talks about how the Brewsters are sold, the Straffords had left. He's 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 betrayed. He when he says you got old, like his face is like making like a little tight like little butthole face when he says that because he's trying not to cry. But he's even feeling betrayed by his uncle who took nine bullets. He's like you got old, like that's a sin. Why did you get old? He's well, he's so hurt. Weird that must be. Remember, you're talking about life expectancy and all that stuff. Actually, having people old enough to give up in many ways, I think, would be 
really a novelty because most of the time they're long gone at a, at a much healthier, younger age. So that alone is probably so odd. But then, of course, like you said, the betrayal of it all that you feel like you guys came in here to save the day. Like, let's go back to why you showed up here in Montana. You came here to save the day. Like, you can't give up now. You know, after how many decades you've put into this, you can't give up now. And with all of the elders being out of the picture, really, you know, with both of his parents being gone and Jacob being down and out and Kara trying her hardest to keep everything going. Jack has to feel like extremely vulnerable. And I would feel I would feel like honestly, like metaphorically, like naked, you know, to the world, like all of a sudden, all of my cloaks that I was draped in that kept me protected, my mother, my father, you know, essentially my grandfather and grandmother, they all feel inadequate. Now, there's no one here to protect me from the outside elements. And I'm just laying here bare in front of everyone. And I'm embarrassed. And I'm not prepared. And I'm, I have no skill set, like you said, to be a leader. And yet we need a leader. So what do I do now? And I think you'd feel some part of again like sort of like anger towards them in terms of like you didn't prepare me to be the leader you guys are so strong and so great and you've taken care of everything so that i could roll around in the door with my girlfriend and look silly and do all this stuff but by the same token like you didn't prepare me i'm not ready to be the leader and that should have been on john and jacob to help prepare but this is and this is very similar to yellowstone and very similar to a lot of our other succession type shows where it's like the true elder like holds on with an iron fist to the reins to the detriment of the next generations because they don't get the experience and the knowledge and all the things that they need to lead effectively and so then when something happens to them you feel pissed at them like why didn't you give me the keys to the kingdom a little bit earlier show me around the place a little bit before you were just gone It's it's the folly of youth and the folly of old age, right? This idea of there's that the idea that there's always more time. My work isn't done here. A type people who can't let go never feel like their work is done. The problem is age does catch up, and eventually you are gone. Whether through through something slow that you have time to prepare, or something quick like being mowed down by a Tommy gun. Time will catch up and time will always win. So what did you do before then? And now they're reaping what they sowed. They didn't prepare Jack. They let him be a, a sweet boy of summer for too, too long. And now his father's dead. And now Jacob is almost dead. And Kara's doing the best she can to keep the whole damn thing together. And there's this magical uncle coming to save the day that to Jack, he's gone at least six years, probably at this point, if he was in the war since seven, 1917, when the United States joined up, uh, that's at least six years. That makes Jack a pretty, probably mid or young teenager the last time he saw spencer he doesn't know who he is you're saying i'm not a leader but some fucking magical guy in africa that i don't remember or don't really know at all is let's even do like a quick thought experiment and say what do we think that john and emma were saying about spencer Right. While he's been gone this Left whole the family, time. And they've the been family. working so hard. Right. And even if Kara, through her letters, has expressed to the audience that she understands that he's searching for something, that he has a void, that he is he is really he searching something for something. War, he's right. lost all this stuff. Right. But that does not speak for a brother. His parents. 
right? Who would be right. Spencer's brother? How betrayed do you think John might feel to have to be the one, that little tiny baby five-year-old John that we all love from 1883, to say, like, I stuck it out. And like, he actually would remember his father, not Spencer so much, but he re- would remember their father right. and what he would have wanted. And so I can't imagine the conversations that John and Jack might have had, or even implied, or even side-eyed, or whatever, that you have to think that Jack's impression of Spencer at very best has to be mixed. Neutral. Okay? Neutral at best and probably very no, I'm unfavorable. Say mixed because I, I, don't, I can't even go with neutral because I got to think there's people in the household who understood him staying away right. and people in the household who didn't. But that's truly mixed. I don't know if I should look at you as the savior or, you know, as a jerk who's coming in at the last second. We have a, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of this show, but we, we probably need to start thinking about it again on this idea that Spencer will be returning to the ranch and returning to Kara and, and Jacob, who he hasn't seen in years at this point. He was young. He was less than 10 years old when his parents died. He spent most of his life being raised by Jacob and Kara. I imagine he has to think of them as a mom and dad. He cannot realistically have very many or clear memories of his actual parents. He was just too young. John was 15. 15 is an age where you remember things from your youth. Maybe he doesn't remember when he was five, traipsing around in the 1883 days, but he remembers enough that he remembers his parents clearly. And so Jacob and Kara can always be an aunt and uncle, no matter how much they raised him. Spencer is going to come in there, and I think he, my gut is he has to come in there thinking mom and dad, at least in vibe, if not in words. You know, when, when we get that cable, we get to see it before we hear Kara read it voiceover style. It says, Aunt Kara. I received your letter. I am coming home, Spencer. And a, bre- a brevity of words, efficient. It's a telegram. But he takes the time to say Aunt Kara, which he didn't have to do. But there's respect there and there's love there by starting it by Aunt Kara. He could have just written. It was going to the ranch. He could have just written, I got your letter. I'm coming home, Spencer. That's even more brief, right? That's even more efficient. But it took the time to say Aunt Kara. There's love there. Listen to the letters Kara wrote him in the voiceover and the way she delivers it. The way he reacted hearing Alex read the letter from Aunt Kara. There, there's, there's love there. There's motherly and, and son-like love there. I think there's a lot of subtext there that we could like delve into all day long. But I think the fact that Kara is the one writing letters to him and she doesn't sign it, Kara and Jacob, and she doesn't sign it, Kara, Jacob, John, Emma, Jack, and everyone at the ranch. It is clearly a private relationship between her and him. As so many mothers and sons are. That's right. But that's important for the viewers to pay attention to that, that we could see a very fascinating relationship between Jacob and him. We really don't have any good idea except for that. What do we think Jacob thinks about not coming home, you know, sooner? And what do we think he thinks about wandering around the world trying to find yourself and whatever? You know, I think we have a pretty good idea of what a Harrison Ford slash Jacob type character is going to feel. And I don't think it's great. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of resentment there. Maybe, maybe not. Jacob would have fought in the Civil War, right? He, he, he would have been close enough in age to John, given how old he is now. He, and that everyone had a fight in the Civil War, basically, if you could walk. So he understands war. So he, maybe he doesn't, but I mean, age does change you. Things become more black and white and a lot less gray the older you get and the more 
definite you are in your opinions. I agree with you. I think it's going to be a much colder relationship, a much more transactional relationship, Spencer and Jacob versus Kara and Spencer, who I think is going to be much more mother and son. Think of the way she says to Banner at the end of last episode, uh, I can't wait for you to meet my nephew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and I then, did. The boy didn't impress. Not that one. <laughs> but you know what, though? That's like dripping with pride. You yeah, know? Yeah. Like, he is so, he you know, badass. capable, capable, right. and going to just like womp your ass so bad. I'm curious because we've had this entire cast working together on the ranch and we've seen the dynamic between everybody. It's really interesting, almost what, half, three quarters of the way through, really, of this particular set of eight. You're bringing in a character who we know and have a relationship with, but we haven't seen with all the rest of them. Right. And so that's really like fresh for us, like so mid midway here. Oh, it's upsetting the apple cart completely. Yeah. Yeah, And so I think that I think we're going to see all these relationships relationships upend you know what would be really wild if alex is dead and elizabeth is pregnant and something happens to jack i think we get a spencer elizabeth baby well you and i called and i and i'm still adopted baby right i'm still sold on this that jack will not be around to see his child grown spencer will end up raising whatever baby that is the same way his uncle raised him in the wake of his father dying it's the yellowstone way it feels very taylor sheridan it feels narratively correct well, and it also feels like Jack's anger towards Spencer will be real and palpable. So then for there to be like that extra delicious moment of Spencer having to raise a guy's son who is like pissed at him and right. angry at him is like just it just adds another layer completely. Right. And and well, think back to the line again. I'm going back to the when Spencer and Alex were in bed. They're talking about madness in their families. And she says to him, our, our children will be mad. We should just adopt. And, and now most people probably just let that skip. But that that was like, oh, I'm putting that on the board. Like they put that out in the universe that our children would be crazy. We should just adopt, not have our own kids. It fits narratively. It makes so much sense. It feels so right for the kinds of stories that we're getting here that Spencer and Alex or Spencer alone as a widow raises Spencer Jack's. and Elizabeth. I don't see that. I, 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 I don't if see Alex that. If Alex is dead, where, where are you going with him? I think he just stays a bachelor. I don't think I don't think he ends up having his own kid. I think he just raises it's part of the going extinct. We're down to then three Duttons, and so he has to raise the baby Dutton. And that Dutton that which would be Dabney Coleman Dutton, presumably, kind of re jump starts the line. The key is have more kids. Gotta have more kids. Gotta have more kids. You gotta have well <laughs> but we know Dabney Coleman ends up only having two when one dies as a baby. Uh Peter, I think his name is, right? And then he has Kevin Costner, the only boys that he has. I think there's a sister maybe that died there too. But but boys wise, there's just the baby who died and there's Kevin Costner, John Dutton. So the Dutton family tree is very thin. We know through a lot of the twentieth century the fa- the Dutton family tree is very, very thin. Nobody has like ten children. No. This is not Ireland in the mid 1800s mm-hmm. or Just or or true. the or the immigrant centers in uh, the United States in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you know, uh, smaller families now because life is so fucking hard. It's so hard well, to stay alive. Live. Remember, that's what we were saying, that right. it's not so much that the life expectancy is so low. It's actually under 15 is when you're most likely to die. If you make it to 15, you have a fair shot of making it into adulthood 
good. But I mean, most people don't make it to 15. Let's That's talk, wild. Let's uh, talk about Karen Jacob, one of the best relationships on the show. They're just so much fun to watch. Their chemistry is just so great between these two. This was actually all pretty lighthearted. What I liked in this episode was you saw more of this mutual respect between Jacob and Kara and Kara and Jacob. Kara and Jacob is easy, right? She comes upon him when he is going up and down the stairs, struggling, gripping at the railing. He goes up, he comes back down, he's going up again. She sees him the second time going up the stairs. And she could say something. She wants to say something. She wants him to tell him to stop, to rest. He's going to hurt himself. But she doesn't. She just lets him be. I don't know how you took that scene. I thought that was actually a really nice show of this couple understanding the other and and the respect that she feels like she knows she has to give him space. Have you ever been in the gym with somebody who like a friend or family member or something and you get that kind of side eye from them, which is like, don't. This is hard for me and I don't want your input and I don't want you to correct my form and I don't want you to make a comment about anything I'm doing. I don't even want you to really be looking at me or making eye contact with me. I just want you to just move on because I'm in the middle of my own personal struggle. That's how I felt like completely. I felt like that side eye that the whole message between the two of them was don't just don't say it. Don't look at me. Don't whatever. Do you think he even realizes that she's there? Because I think, he it's, the, I think it's the whole vibe, though, is like, just just don't right. don't like leave him be and move along. And, you know, whether it's the best idea or not, it's not for you to, to interrupt him like he his pride would be so hurt that it is beyond not a good idea yes i agree with that and i think that's the respect that i'm talking about her to him and i think he gives it to her and we'll talk about that in a second but also practically he needs to get strong the guy had nine bullet holes the fact that he's alive at all is amazing but he is alive and so he needs to get to work the same way he hobbles out with all of the doctors and nurses surrounding him because he needs to be in the sun he needs to do these things he needs to be moving and she knows that given the state of things she hasn't gotten a post she hasn't gotten a telegram from spencer at this point jacob is it as far as she knows, really, uh, her and Jacob are it as far as saving this place and defending this place. So she needs Jacob to get back as much as he can, as quickly as he can. So there's a practical side to it on top of the she know, she understands she has to give him the space to struggle and, and to succeed. You know, I feel like you could write an entire short story about the concept of like a widow in this situation with Jacob passing and her having to do some sort of a reverse Mrs. Doubtfire and have to like somehow figure out how to like dress like a man and like go into town and like be seen as Jacob, but then be like all like never talking to anybody, you know, that kind of thing. Just like, oh, was that Jacob that just went by? Oh, I just saw him at the coffee shop or whatever, you know, like, could you see like an entire storyline of yeah. the widow trying? to like keep the ranch and and be this like having to be in disguise. I mean, she's doing the preliminary stuff of that, right? I mean, thinking about how she put the livestock agency into place at the meeting, at the livestock commission meeting. And and the interaction she has with Whitfield at the end, too, when he says, I'll just stop by. She doesn't doesn't flinch. She doesn't blink. She doesn't betray betray any kind of hint that there won't be a, a fully formed, capable, strong man there to greet him if he shows up. She keeps her powder dry. She plays it cool. It's all about bullshit with her either the card game bullshit that you would play uh yeah. you know she's she's bluffing she could home alone it though she could totally do the, yes. like come at night and then have like the michael jordan stand up like dancing in Knocking the front of the window <laughs> exactly like don't you kind of like like you could feel that yeah. home 
Home Alone. Because she's, she's crafty. Oh my she's... God, Mike, Helen Mirren, Home Alone 5 on the ranch. Listen, you know if Helen Mirren's in No, it, shut I'm, up. I'm a... Think of her doing the like, ah, like Helen Mirren. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm I for love it. it. Any listeners out there that are creative, go, go put that cut together. Make a Helen Mirren a screen Helen face for me. Yeah. <laughs> or just Helen Mirren and then like, you know, uh, Harrison Ford dancing in the silhouette in, uh, in the front room. <laughs> with like, with the total Weekend at Bernie's ropes on his arms. A Harrison Ford Weekend at Bernie uh, episode would be a classic <laughs> that they... It would be classic. I don't know if it would be classic, but, but well, it would be put hilarious. Some sun, put some sunglasses on Harrison Ford. Yes. If sunglasses like, even just, exist. He's like outside at that whatever, wherever did they get wicker furniture and all this stuff for their little patio furniture that they had out mm. there? I was like, why are they not on those big rocking chairs like they always are on that were like clearly just made of regular like logs? But instead, they're on this like Pier 1 wicker set. I was going to say Pier 1 just opened in Montana <laughs> in 1923. super weird. Right. But it, you could totally weekend at Bernie's him out there you could just like prop his hat kind of over his eyes and just make his arm wave when they come up the driveway <laughs> I've got an entire story laid out for you uh, stay tuned that's the hit it's going to be the, that's going to be season two in 1923 <laughs> to be seen on Tubi and Roku yes Caroline is writing <laughs> Par- Paramount plus plus um, Tubi. Tubi brought to you by Tubi fast <laughs> exactly and you'll all learn what fast means sooner yeah, than later. Free ad-supported streaming television. Um, A.K.A. regular TV. But Jake, Jacob gives gives respect to Kara because he has things he needs her to know and to do, but he doesn't tell her. He counsels her. You know, one is telling her to keep Jack close and away from town. That That's just he because he had that conversation with Jack one on one and he sees the anger in him. So he's he's just giving her like a heads up like he's unstable. You've got to keep him close. But really, it was about the livestock agents. Right. He says, have you started hiring any livestock agents yet? She says the sheriff is starting to interview people. He says, no, no, no. You have to do it. He could say me. He could say, no, I want to meet all these people. He says, no, Carrie, you have to do it. And he says, no one charming, a charming, someone charming is going to be uh, working for Banner and whoever is supporting Banner. I like this. I, I like that he's not usurping her power. He is giving her her flowers. He is recognizing she is actually the one running the show. And he's just trying to counsel her here. I think that's important. I think it's small, but I think it's an important thing because think how Whitfield talks about Kara later on in the episode. Isn't it the rancher's wife's job to keep her husband's calendar? Not this wife. Jacob doesn't treat Kara the way Whitfield must treat his wife or the way he thinks that wives should be treated. Jacob is giving Kara the ability to maneuver and take care of this family and keep them going. They're a partnership. I like it. I love that he trusts her opinion and trusts her judgment without saying you will know. And if you trust them, then I trust them. He didn't say that. But just saying, looking in their eyes, you know, means and I trust your eyes and your gut and your instinct to know, you know, that these are good people. I think that that that's probably one of the biggest gifts you could give to a partner is to basically infuse them with your trust and and your reassurance that like I know you're going to make the right pick so you you can handle this completely it's not the usual you know you're a great person you're so smart speech 
But it essentially, I mean, it emboldens that person to be able to move forward and do this. And I I love that there's never that sort of undermining where he does give like a pep talk because that would imply she's like a child and couldn't really do it. He doesn't even go there. You know, he's like, look in their eyes. You got this. You know, the end. Sometimes people deal with you and you feel their hand on your back pushing you, either metaphorically or literally pushing you to go do something. There's another way of handling that, though, where you keep your hand on the small of the person's back and you're not pushing them. You're just bracing them. You're giving them courage. You're bolstering them, like you said. It makes a world of difference, that hand position. I think metaphorically, metaphorically, Jacob is just putting his hand on the small of Kara's back here with with regards to the livestock agents. And I love that. It speaks volumes about their relationship. Obviously, you know, for you and I, we have been super happy with the casting of these two and their relationship and their rapport. And I think it's so realistic and so aspirational for a lot of people that they would want, you know, a partner who would talk to them that way and trust them. You know, just how many men could be as powerful and in control as a Jacob Dutton and not exert that control over their wife? Almost none. Especially in 1923. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, I mean, the more powerful any, like, partner or anybody would get, it follows right behind them that they start exerting that power over everyone, their children, their pets, their spouses, everybody, right? Everybody better say how high when I say jump. It's a whole mindset. And the fact that he can be such a strong leader and control that entire town with the livestock agents and everything and still be like feet on the ground partner with, God forbid, a woman, you know, at this time, you know, oh, gosh, she's so much less than it's refreshing, you know, and it it shows you how it can be done for those people who are sitting at home. And we talk a lot about what's the demographic of Yellowstone Watchers. This might be a very novel concept of like you can be strong and you can be powerful and you can be respectful and you can be trusting of your spouse. And, and you know, I think that's a different dynamic than most people are used to seeing. And I think it's a credit to Ford and Mirren's chemistry that they can pull this off so seemingly. Um, it, yeah. And it is novel. And it's a novel way that we see men and wives interact in so many shows, Westerns aside. But it, it really flips on its head that power dynamic in, in so many ways. I also like in this scene, just going things that I liked in the scene, I like that these two figure out banner and whitfield's plot they don't name whitfield but they get to the idea that a gold miner is the one who stands to benefit from everything that's happening here in paradise valley i like it because that at least tells me the show is telling us that whitfield is not smarter than kara and jacob in about a minute of sitting and actually talking it through, the two of them figured out this plot that's happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's important because if the show was just setting it up that he's like some Lex Luthor big brain villain that in no way can the Duttons outsmart him, that would be a problem. But here in this scene, they have they have established clearly and succinctly and efficiently Kara and Jacob are mentally the equals because they figured out the plan and the plot immediately. Yeah, and that they're up for the challenge. Like they, they weren't like, oh God, well, there's nothing we can do. It's like, okay, this is who it is, and here's what we're gonna do about it. Like, you know, let's move forward. And I, I think that, you know, these people, 
they've got to be pretty big hearted when you really think about it. You know, the fact that they got the letter the same like Spencer did and they did come running and they did come and take care of those boys and they are doing this. We have no idea what Jacob and Kara's dreams were. You know, maybe they imagine themselves, you know, Oceanside for the rest of their lives. Like we have no idea, but they gave it all up to come and protect someone else's dream. That's pretty amazing. It's brotherly love. It's what you do for family, right? It's totally Elsa and Anna. Sibling love. I love it. I love it. And, and we, we, we were missed if we didn't have the funny conversation about the fact that nine bullets didn't kill me. I don't think a steak will either. Oh, that was so funny. You know what? So that funny. reminded me so much of Gilmore Girls. I know we have to bring it all back to Gilmore Girls. Do you remember the like the uh, when Richard has the heart attack and he has to eat fish? Yes. And he's like, oh, great. Fish again. That so whole much thing. fish in that show. It is. It's so funny. But it's that same kind of feeling like I don't think a steak's going to take me down. But, but the show <laughs> it's so it's written so well and taylor is really putting his his best work into into this one when he she comes back around she's like boiled chicken and rice it is and he says he grouses boiled chicken and rice is no man's last meal and she says exactly i know i think that was so cute and it's clever so about, cute and very cause, clever because you know what because you're living forever sir i'm gonna keep serving you food that you don't think's your last meal so right. you stay with me forever no no good meals to die on here <laughs> exactly so. Let's switch to Kara and Don Whitfield and Banner. Oh, you know what? We should I spy if steak ever comes up again because we know that boiled chicken and rice are not a last meal. So we should I spy when they have some feast because that could be foreshadowing for us. Interesting. Same way that you spy if you ever go to an Italian restaurant with Michael Corleone and he has to go to the bathroom. If that ever happens, you should be aware because you're probably going to get shot. (laughs) He's probably getting a gun out of the toilet. So He probably is. What do we say? Take the gun, leave the cannoli. Take the gun, leave the cannolis. That's actually, that's that's not Michael that says that, but it is good advice, and I live by it every day. I always <laughs> take the cannolis. I, I always leave the gun. Whitfield, let's listen to Whitfield reveal a little bit of his plan, but really, really seduce Banner. I don't even think he had to at this point, but he's really using the whole money aspect in this episode to come about with his plans. He's not using force. He's using the almighty dollar and entrapments of good living to get his way here. Entrapments of good living is a very good way to say it because uh, Banner's face when Whitfield starts turning off and on the lights. Yeah. Yes. Let's, let's take a listen to it. You're actually going to hear the light clicking in this clip. Let's take a listen. Get me more of these. Anyone you can run off. We'll choke this Dutton out. How much land do you want? I want it all. I want the whole valley. Where to feed the wood? It runs on gas. Gas from where? It's piped into the house. Where do you live, Banner? I have a homestead up north in the mountains. Log and sod. I never lived in a city. Never? In the country, you survive your surroundings, or try to, anyway. It's the most a man can muster when he abandons civilization. Cities are the mastery of one's surroundings.
Necessities become comforts. In the wild, the availability of water dictates whether you survive the day. In the city, that most precious of resources becomes an afterthought. No more log and sod for you. It's yours. Now you're a master, too. He's doing so much stuff here, right? On top of revealing, I want the whole valley. He sounds like a real Disney villain. How much land do you want? I want it all. <laughs> yeah, but I loved when he said that. I was like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, a man, a man with great appetites. But just the way he clicks on the lights and runs the mm-hmm. water. He's 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 doing Barker's Beauties, right? He's showing us the final showcase showdown. The big prize is this modern, modern home over your, oh, log and sod, is it? Uh, you know (laughs) yes this is an important scene why why did i play this what he's talking about here these these mass becoming a master of your surroundings versus living at the whim of nature the subtext here to me is everything everything all duttons across all eras have resented and repudiate and go out of their way to live in the opposite way not that they resist modern conveniences when they come. We know Kara wants electricity in the house because she does want a gas range. She does, you know, she does want gas pumped in her house and she does want an electric washing machine and she does want an electric refrigerator. And we know in modern Yellowstone, they don't live by candlelight. The, the Dutton Ranch is, is wired for electricity. But what it represents, this idea of city mouse versus country mouse, that's all I could think of listening to him. The idea that country mouse is simple and backwards and city mouse is sophisticated and a master of man and a master of animals and a master of nature. And you country mouse is ju- are just backwards and you don't understand how the world works. It's this theme. And I think this is a Taylor Sheridan theme, this elitism, right? The cars in, in, Bozeman versus the horseback carriages and the horse and the guys just riding horseback. It, it, there is a war of progress versus the traditional ways of life. The problem is that people, people like Whitfield use progress as a weapon, not just to make your life easier, but I think to trap you, to dominate you, to, right. to trap you, to, to, to obliterate you. He's essentially saying people who live like the city mouse, people who live the way Banner lives up until this scene, because he tosses them the keys to the house. You're a master now, too. Those people don't even deserve to live. Not only that, not only is Whitfield saying he is better than them, he's saying that they need to be removed. They are in the way. They are nothing well, geez, more than... What does this sound like? It sounds a whole lot like we have these people who already occupy the land. And see, we're like the British coming on in. And uh, we want to just go ahead and clear out the people who currently live on the land. This is just the Native American story 2.0, moving out the next group of people who moved in on the land. Yeah. The first settlers. Yeah. Everything that we just talked about having to do with Spencer and the way that he grew up and, you know, Banner had to have a similar life as Spencer. They're probably similar aged. The idea that all of a sudden you don't have to fight with nature in order to survive. We have all these conveniences. We have all these things where we have 
tamed nature. We have whooped its ass, you know, and, and we can get water whenever we want. We don't have to go follow any stream or worry when it's going to rain or any of that stuff. I think it's tapping into that exact same part that I'm saying for those who had to struggle, there's a lot of resentment and desire to not continue that life. And now you have this like big, beautiful, shiny alternative. I mean, it would be very hard to not want to just live that life instead. But you're giving up all these beautiful resources in the land. And it's hard not to be blinded by the shininess of the city. Let's listen to the last clip, because I think it it even focuses more this conversation between Whitfield and Banner, the conversation that Whitfield has with Kara. Let's take a listen to that, because I think it uh, helps bring in, uh, bring a point to this whole conversation. I'd love to meet your husband. Is there a time I might pay a visit? I'll inform him of your interest. We could choose a time now. I don't keep his calendar. Listen, that's what branches' wives do. Keep the books and the calendar. Not this wife. Then perhaps I'll just stop by and see if he's free. The valley's changing. Progress is upon us. There are opportunities beyond cattle, which isn't much of a business these days. More of a dream, really. And not a good one. Well, it's our dream. The valley We've is changing. We've heard that line before. We've heard that line before. It's not a dream. <laughs> it's a nightmare, Margaret. That's it's a right. Nightmare. We've heard this. I don't recall anyone forcing me. Who the hell do you think you are? What is so funny? Honestly, Claire, I don't have the energy or the interest to continue this conversation. What are you? <laughs> He's a dreamer, Margaret. Always has been. And they never come true. It's coming true, Claire. No. This is not a dream. This is the nightmare. You'll see. I mean, the you'll see. That's Whitfield. This is a this is a bad dream, but it's it's this idea of progress. Changes come into the valley. Progress is upon us. There are opportunities here more lucrative than cattle raising, which isn't much of a thing anymore. Anyway, more like a dream uh, and a bad dream at that. That's a paraphrase, essentially, of what he says. Duttons are always dealing with progress. I am the rock upon which progress will smash. John Dutton, governor, uh, John Dutton for governor speech, kickoff speech. Margaret and Claire, this from 1883, the clip we just played. Margaret doubling down on believing in James, trusting James, and it's James's dream to get them where they are now in Montana. Claire is the Whitfield. It's not a dream, Margaret. It's a nightmare. You'll see. You know, <laughs> It's it, it, this is a theme that you runs through. Tried all... out for that part. 
you got it. You nailed it. I oh, I mean, I I've done it so many times across all these podcasts. He's a dreamer, Margaret. <laughs> you you nailed it, man. I love it. I I have a good. You should totally good, have been cleared. I would have to be sleeping with uh, Jamie Dutton in Mainline Yellowstone, though. No. Oh man. So that's the only way I get that role. Is that's because, a bummer for you. Yeah. Don Don Oliveri <laughs> does, is doing a great job. She doesn't need my help, but. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it, this. This is a theme. This is the theme of the universe. This is the theme of the Yellowstone universe. The cattle ranching, this this loyalty, this obsession with the fucking land that you Duttons have. It is the ruin of you. How do you stand in the face of progress, man? But I stand with the Duttons. I feel them. When Kara says it's our dream, I feel that. When Margaret says it's James's dream, and I def- I'm on his side, I feel that. When John and Beth and Casey don't want to get rid of the ranch and they want to stand off the the airport and the ski village, I feel that. Maybe it makes no sense. It probably doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable. But I feel it, though. I, I get where they're coming from. I very much feel their sense of wanting to see the dream be followed through with does that make sense it does but also what's the end right more cows more selling when does the dream end how about this i wouldn't want it to end on my watch i don't need to know exactly where it's gonna end but i certainly wouldn't want the torch to go out on my leg of the race well that's also another recurring theme in the show so for me i would have a rough time because despite the fact that i don't want the torch passed to me necessarily and i don't necessarily want to run this race it would be very hard to look backwards at all the family members and all that had been sacrificed and say nah i'm just gonna let the torch go out i'm gonna let the land get sold i'm gonna move on with my life there will be a dutton who does that there has to be right i mean there has to be eventually this is that prison no, right? That we're talking about though. This is the prison no that we're talking about because when you said that just now, it reminded me of Kevin Costner, John Dutton in Ma- in Mainline Yellowstone, mm-hmm. saying this ranch is in our family over a hundred years and it's going to die with me. And he's not saying it happily. He's saying it like I have fucking failed. Yeah, like the torch went out. I'm the one that messed up the whole yeah, thing. He's you know? actively saying what you're what you're what you're explaining here is something that has been said. And but that's a prison no. That's not wanting to keep the dream alive. That's I have to do this because it's hot potato and I well, don't that, want the music to stop. That's what I'm saying. It's the opposite. It's not that you're driven to make the dream come true. You're driven for the dream to not die on your watch. Th- those are two different motivations. Mm. You know, that isn't, you're not fulfilling anything. Even when Kara said it's our dream, I, I kind of chortle at that because I'm like, really, Kara? It's your dream? I doubt it. I doubt it was. You weren't in Montana when everything went down. You came afterwards. You're the ne- you're the first torch holder. You know, this wasn't necessarily her dream, but she says it was such conviction. It's it's our dream. It's what we want. She means the collective we Duttons, we historical Duttons. You know, this is what we want. But you're so right that that it is a game then of like either you find some amount of pride and happiness in the life that you're leading or you do decide it's a prison so i mean i think that they i think they ran us through their paces with the jack and elizabeth storyline in this one about the idea of well it can be a prison or you can make it something completely different and and so long as you have love and you have people around you who care about you it's not going to feel that way so what does that look like and i think i think the whole jack elizabeth interaction should make that very clear 
Uh, I agree. Uh, it, it just again, well written pairing all how these storylines intersect. One doesn't seem to have anything to do with another. Well, listen to the words, listen to the themes that are being talked about. Maybe not the words themselves, but the emotions and the subtext behind them. And it's all connected. Kara talking to Whitfield here is exactly what Jack and Elizabeth were talking about. And it's the exact thing that appealed to Spencer to get him to come home. Remember Kara's letter? It wasn't just your brother's been killed and your uncle's probably dead by the time you get this. The crux of that letter, the majority of that letter is your legacy, this this ranch, the family's dream is under attack. It is at war and you need to come defend it. The crux of that letter is the appeal to the Dutton in Spencer. The land, the, the land, the fucking land is under attack. Come home. The torch is going out. You need to come reignite the torch. That's mm-hmm. what that letter is. That's what that's what gets him on this boat from Zanzibar. Uh, yes, maybe you can't you, let it happen on your watch. You can't let That's it happen it. on your watch. If I'm the last Dutton, if John is dead and Jack is wounded and Jacob is dead, I'm the last Dutton. I'm the last Dutton male anyway. I can't mm-hmm. let the torch go out on my end on my watch. Let's go to Africa. <laughs> Let's go to Africa. I love this episode for Alex and Spencer. I, I have made no bones that I am I am giddy and a smitten kitten for these two. You're I, so funny about them. Why, why do you think you're so in love with them? I like what they represent as far as love and hope and getting on in this world with a person that understands your brand of crazy. Finding your soulmate in an unlikely place and at an unlikely time. Uh, in their case, at a bar at a fancy hotel in Nairobi. I like all that represents. And this episode is great because this episode, I think this episode does a lot to flesh out each of their personalities. I think this episode also does a lot to flesh out how they are as a couple, how they are going to be as a couple. And more, most importantly, and I'm going to play some clips to support all this. I'm going to play a couple one after another. This episode does something that it has to do because of how quickly these two came together. When a couple courts ask, goes out on a date, they know each other. Maybe they're friends. Maybe they go on on a first date. They go on a second date. They date for a couple of years. Then they get married. They are, they're engaged for a while. Then they get married. Then they have a baby. And then before you know it, before you blink, 10 years have gone by, 15 years have gone by, 20 years have gone by. They know each other and you know what that couple looks like. They have committed two decades together, right? Kara and Jacob, 40 years together, almost 40 years together. They have, they don't need to prove their love to each other or their commitment to each other on a daily basis because they have lived 40 years together. Spencer and Alex have known each other weeks, maybe months at this point. That's it. So they need to recommit to each other constantly at this point and we need to see that in order to believe that they are actually a functioning couple that may be able to exist in this world and in this episode they recommit to each other in a significant way no poetic words just words of commitment words of understanding no silliness alex who is operates from a silly place always very serious when it gets down to the relationship talking that was a lot of words. I want to play some clips to kind of support this, because if you put them all together, I think it paints a good idea of who these two are. Did you plan on leaving a note? It's on the dresser. What does it say? 
says that this trip is too dangerous. Envelope his money so he can book passage back to London. Says I'll send for you when it's safe. Says a lot. There is no sending for me, Spencer. We have a life together. Or we live our lives apart. Can you do that? Can you live your life without me? You only get to choose me once. The choice will not be offered again. In all the madness we've seen and chaos that these two have experienced the short time they've been together, Alex has never been so serious. She's never posed their relationship as there is no coming for me later. You either, we're either together now or we are just not going to be together. And I'll push it further. You only get to choose me once. This offer will not be offered again. That's serious biz. That's not, that's Elizabeth talking to Jack. That, that's the other, this is the other example of women setting boundaries for what they have expectations in their relationship. I'm curious how you took this scene. I felt very encouraged that Alex stuck up for herself so calmly and so completely. It was very clear that he is not going to be able to play these reindeer games of I'm going to leave you behind and then I'll come get you later like she's a piece of luggage. I'm super proud that they wrote her like that and said like, no. And she didn't like tear the joint up or have some sort of big crying explosion. She just said, here are the rules of this relationship. And if you want to be in this relationship, this is how it's going to work. And I think that is another reason why you and I both, I think, are attracted to these two, because I think we look at them and we're like, this is how things should go. You should just be able to communicate with the other person exactly how you feel. And all of us really want that with our partners, all of us. So, I mean, the fact that she was like, you can choose me one time, this is it. There's no other like take backs, gimmies, whatever. I was like, good for you. And you know right. what? He should know without her even having said all that, given the fact that the whole reason why they're together is because she is so decisive. She walked from another man, walked right in front of her, him and all her family and friends, walked right away from him and was like, nope, I'm going this direction. If she can be that decisive, he should know. Like, she's not playing any games here with you. You know, she's down for the adventure. She sat in a tree and got attacked by lions. Like, why are you acting like she should be sit out for the rest of this game? You know, right, and I'll she's come no back and get flower, you. Right? She's no, she's strong. She's capable. And here's the other thing. I'm glad that that letter did say, stay put, I'll come back for you, versus what I was afraid it was gonna say which is like a my life's too complicated right. we can't ever figure this out i love you this was a wonderful thing but but we can't ever like that would have pissed me off and really been like spencer's out of this whole thing but he didn't say that you know he i think he 
did what he thought was the honorable, safe option. I'm just so glad that she just didn't put up with any of it. How, what do you feel like about having a woman come back like that? I know you're not a fan of ultimatums, and this was most certainly an ultimatum. So what do you think about it? I don't know, though. It didn't. It's not really an ultimatum, though, because it's really a response to to listen to the clip from when we first meet Alex when she says she's on she's been put on the train with a destination not of her choosing Spencer is doing to her the same thing again that note represents being put on a train with a destination not of her choosing she chose to go with him and she has yet to say but I won't do this this or this that will give him pause to think that she wouldn't want to continue on this adventure but he's deciding for her with that note. So I don't think she's giving him an ultimatum as much as she's just telling him the way it is, is you won't be coming back for me because I won't be available for you to come back. That's not realistic. Wherever this adventure is, I, I read the letter from your aunt too. You're going into a dangerous situation in the middle of a country that is thousands and thousands of miles away from where my parents live. It's easy to say you'll come back for me, but that's not a reliable thing. The, the likelihood is that he would never come back for her. So either we go together now or let's be let's let's be real. It's not an ultimatum. It's just facts. We're not going to be together. Well, and the thing we have to remember, too, is the the conversation we've had about women of this time. She cannot afford to be not married. She can't afford to be waiting around for him. That's not an option. Right. We haven't gotten any of the blowback that her parents must have been hella pissed at her for walking away from running, literally running away from her engagement party in Nairobi. But but what's her option? Go sit and be a child in her parents' house? That's not an option. But can she be a fully formed adult out in the world? with a job and a life and a home no No. you can't do that at this period of time so when she says i can't sit around here and wait for you it's not even out of like because on principle blah 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 it's like because i won't survive i have to have income and and a home and everything else to live so i don't know what he was thinking exactly like where would she go how would this work like it all was just i think he was just thinking danger and i don't want to i don't want to put her in danger well yes and no it goes to the conversation that they're having going on on the boat and he says stay close and she's like i've been through mombasa i came through mombasa and he pointed out the situation is different when you came through mombasa you were with a large engagement party and higher drivers here it's just you and me and our luggage and and no nothing else no safety net so stay close but then he's willing to leave her in mombasa with money to get her home to London, which doesn't really make sense if you're concerned with protecting her. But I think you're right. I think he thought he was doing the honorable thing of I am walking in a war zone. You know, war was used in this letter from my aunt. I don't know that I, I I care about you too much to put you in that knowable danger. When he took her on the safari and the elephant charged, he didn't plan on that. He didn't like, we're going to go get charged by an elephant today. He didn't plan on that winding up in a tree with with hungry lions and hyenas trying to eat them. That wasn't planned. This time, he's knowingly bringing her into danger. And I think that gave him pause. And if you remember, her response to having that experience was, I want you to be in a new line of work. Like, we're not doing this anymore. And he's like, that wasn't my work. That was just like a day trip. But if you remember, her reaction to it was bawling her eyes out and saying she wanted him to quit this as his job. So if you're him and you're thinking, well, that was your response to that situation. And now I know this is this is a horrible situation at home. How am I bringing you willingly back to a lion tree? You know, when you asked me not to do that. Where the lions now have guns. Right. And have killed my family. 
So, so I think that's it. And, but, but I do like that she stood up for herself and calmly and watch the scene again when she's delivering the final part of that. The offer won't be given again. She's standing ramrod straight. She has very straight posture there, but there is a single tear running down her cheek. It's it's a very striking scene the way uh, Julia Schleifer uh, delivers the line because there is vulnerability there with the tear rolling down her cheek, but there is iron in her spine though too. She's not wavering in her words and her deeds, and and it's an important recommitment, right? He says, "Get your things." That's his response. Get your things. Recommitting to each other. We have to see these two recommit to each other because they were thrown together in such a fast, chaotic way. If fate works and i believe in fate and i believe people are meant to be together but as a viewing audience we need to see that that is actually supported we got the initial pairing we need to see them in different situations committing to be with each other this is the first time that we get to see that in this episode i want to rewind real quick to the stay close uh conversation watch spencer's face when he's on the boat when he's not talking to her when he gets off the boat and he's having a conversation with his friend about being a free ride he turns around and she's like underfoot it kind of steps on her and she jokes and she smiles and she says well you said stay close and she does the kind of like laughs to herself he doesn't laugh he has a very stern daddy look on his face and he does not laugh right he is already hardening himself for this journey this conversation that happens in this hotel room is already starting on the boat the sense of humor, the playfulness, not that he has shown a ton of it, is already starting to kind of wash away, right? It's its its being walled off for, for whatever journey is ahead of them. I bring that up because after they send the telegram, they have this conversation when they come back off of the Mauritania. Why are you smiling? I'm extraordinarily pleased with myself. You should be smiling, too. I'm proving quite resourceful on this journey, and we haven't even left yet. No telling how I'll save the day, Max. Yeah, no so. Oh, I'm sorry. Is my jovial nature infringing upon your sullenness? You're not going to do this the entire trip, are you? To what? Talk. I talk when I'm nervous. If you'd speak as well, you could cut my talking by half. But no, you're too busy sulking, which makes me doubt everything, which makes me more nervous, which means I must double my talking to compensate. Frankly, I'm shocked it bothers you. Most men find it quite endearing. I've blabbered my way into many a courtship, let me assure you. I have no doubt. This is important because they don't really know each other. You need this scene to understand why do you act the way you act? Why are you so sullen and serious? Why are you so silly and talkative and goofy? (laughs) I felt like this show was talking directly to me. No. Stop. I I definitely didn't have that in mind when I was pulling this clip. I don't know what you're talking about. The whole, like, don't let my jovial, like, nature, like, dampen your sullen bullshit. Like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Back it up to when she says. Back it up, he said. Back it up to why why I'm so quite pleased with myself. I've already been an asset to saving you. I might have absolutely said I'm quite pleased with myself more than one occasion i i do get pleased with myself when i manage to to make something work and i love her problem solving nature like that is right up my alley as well yes 
And, and, and the idea that she is doubly talkative when she gets nervous and him being <laughs> silent makes her have to talk more to fill the air is believable. I mean, you are living proof of this, but I people are win. like this. This is a real thing. <laughs> but also from his point of view and what she calls him as sullen, this is that hardening, right? This is now sometime after, uh, the conversation coming off of the boat when she's trying to make him smile and he just stares at her. He is hardening. He is only going to get more silent and more sullen, and she's going to have to work to get through to him, to, to his heart, because he doesn't know what he's walking into, but he knows it's nothing good. He's preparing himself, and she is watching this. But again, you need these scenes because they need to understand each other. They need to know why they are the way they are. And couples that have been together for 40 years understand that without having to have this conversation. Think back to when um, Jacob is, is shaving and and his conversation with Kara. The conversation there is, in all the years we've been together, you've never asked me a question you didn't already know the answer to. And, and, and he says also, uh, I love listening to you talk. And she says, I love watching you shave. They know why they are the way they are. They know why they act the way they act. Spencer and Alex don't yet. So you need these scenes to teach them and to teach us why they are the way they are. It's so important and it's so well done and it invests you in why this can be a real couple. I think it's important that beyond the relationship that we're understanding, I have a better sense of Alex and her ability to adapt and make her way through the world. And I think that's really important because she's really could come off to a lot of audience members as like having a very cushy life. She probably doesn't carry her luggage. You know, other people carry her luggage. Right. You know, she has a whole air about her that could come off very princessy and very like everyone does things for me. But the fact that she knew how to get around certain things like, like the telegram and everything, it shows me that she's capable of living in Montana and capable of, of adapting to ranch life. And I think that that's very important. And I hope it, it actually gives me, I hope it's not unfounded, but hope that she really does make it out of this episode and she can thrive on the ranch. Everything about her, and especially what we've seen in this episode with the problem solving, really indicates as an adaptable thing, more so than Elizabeth. And and we talked about how Elizabeth, no, uh, we talked about how Alex Spencer really seemed to be the next generation version of Jacob and Kara. This episode only reinforces that the way they interact with each other and the skills that they bring to bear. You know, let's get on the boat where they both have to go get a crash course in how to pilot the ship. And after Luca, the old sailor to sea dog, sailor man, uh, leaves them, they have a conversation. It's silly. It's about, I feel naked without a hat. How can a person pilot a boat without a hat? Or how can a person steer a boat or drive a boat? I think it's pilot a boat. You know, they're back and forth and she wants a hat because she's in the captain's chair. But then they get into a real conversation because it starts off by him thanking her and he just leaves it at that. But it devolves into a whole conversation. And again, the end of this cup I'm about to play is them committing to each other again. And it turns out it'll be some of the last words that they actually say to each other, at least in this episode. Uh, let's take a listen to this clip from when they're in the pilot house. Thank you. What? Just thank you. 
talking you out of abandoning me in Mombasa and piloting you across the sea. Nothing but my nautical expertise to guide the way. You're quite welcome. You are going to be hard to argue with when the time comes. <laughs> it will be most unpleasant for you, I'm afraid. Me too. <laughs> You never doubt me again, Spitzer. If you never doubt me, I'll never doubt you. It wasn't a doubt. It was a worry. Well, don't do it. I'll never doubt you. It's settled. You can be my love slave. The pattern of that conversation. They're having fun. Was it my, you know, not letting you quit away from us or my, my prodigious skills at piloting a boat? But then, but then she, the tone changes and she says, don't doubt me. Don't ever doubt me again. I won't doubt you. You don't doubt me. That's a whole tone shift. That, that is a gear shift. That is a tone shift. That is everything shift. Because she possesses those things. Like, she wants to be goofy and silly, but she understands that relationship conversations need to be had, as does he. And he tries to clarify that it wasn't doubt, it was worry, but she dismisses it. Don't do that. Just, 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 worry. Don't, just don't do that. Don't have a worry and don't doubt. And then they, they recommit to each other and he can be her love slave. Oh. But yeah, I, I think the, the, all those three clips, when you listen to them back to back uh, to back, it really sets forth. Why can this be a real couple? Why should I believe that this could really happen? They're showing you all of these clips are them learning about each other, committing to each other, figuring out how they're going to live a life together and not a life apart. It's a significant, a significant episode for these two. I appreciate that they're willing to, to explain themselves a little bit to each other too. Like she could have easily gone on the defensive when he said, are you going to do that the whole time? She could have been like, do what? Or, or acted like, you know, what, you don't like me to talk like, and then clammed up and crossed her arms and all that. We've seen that on rom-coms like all the time. Angry real life. I think a lot of people would bristle at someone saying, why are you the way you are? <laughs> like, <laughs> or like, are you going to keep doing that? And what you're doing is just talking to them. Right. Like, I mean, you'd be like, um, fuck you. I think it'd be pretty simple. But honestly, she was like willing to be like, all right, fine. Here's the sitch. Here's why I'm doing this. And here's the part you're playing in it. And if you don't like it, change what you're doing, you know? And I'm like, yes, I appreciate that. Cause she didn't say I'm going to stop talking, which is what a lot of people would do. Let's talk about Luca, the old sea dog. Yeah. You want to talk about Luca? I want to talk about Did you Luca. recognize him? I didn't. He's been in a lot of stuff. His name is, his name is Peter Stodmeyer, Stodmore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't recognize him because if you look at his non-beardy pictures, he looks like a completely different human being. I was having to go by his nostrils. Yeah, because they because when we, we first saw him, he was in profile. And I was like, I know those nostrils. But then the picture that's like online is, is like a head-on shot, like really just of his face exactly head-on. And so you don't, you can't see the curves of his nostrils in the same way. But I was like, no, I'm confident in those nostrils. <laughs> I love that. 
Love yeah. that confidence. I, I like Luca right off the bat. He notices the mustard gas scar on Spencer's arm, which is not something I've actually ever noticed. Right away, they're they're making a kinship between these two and and a connection of why they they would be drawn to each other. Of all the boats and all the slips and all the piers in in Africa that they would find each other. Well, it's because Luca ran a, a, a floating hospital during the war he understands it the cough of that has him spitting up blood the entire episode probably a malignant holdover of whatever he was exposed to piloting a hospital boat full of sick people and dying people during the war i, I liked it right away i thought it was it was a detail they didn't need to include but they did and it made, immediately kind of sucked you into this guy may be old he may be a little crazy but he also has something to offer and something to teach and some wisdom to impart, as only old sea dogs can. What were your first impressions on Luca here at the bar when they first get on board the tugboat? Oh, I thought he was a rough dude. But at the same time, I did feel kind of safe with him. Like, I was like, okay, I mean, he is crazy. And he is like, he looks like he he's going with it. When they show up at the boat, and she was like, what is it? Like, all uh, when of that. He, when he says, here we are, and she's like, we are where? <laughs> like, what is this thing? Like, I mean, it, the the whole, his whole package, the Luca package, if you will, the boat and him just you know made me chuckle and and it's like of course this is the way their adventure would start you know of having to go with this guy who's who's kind of a little bit wild and out there and yeah, you're right. I felt safe. You know, I, there's two of them in this episode that I was like, two moments where I was like, please let this man be a safe person who does not do anything bizarre and decide to, to make some sort of move or do something strange. And you know what? He fulfilled his duty as far as I'm concerned. Like he, he didn't wig out on them. When he didn't blink or say anything belligerent to her showing up, because I noticed when they were in the bar, he didn't mention when they when they struck their deal and shook hands spencer doesn't mention that i'm also bringing my bride to be with me so i was waiting for that to become an issue and he notes it he's like is the girl with you the girl's with me and that's it that's the only conversation he doesn't say i'm by the way i'm gonna rape her now or that's your you know for passage that or whatever he, he's just he kind of rolls with it and he understands that spencer doesn't know his ass from his elbow with boats when he's going up and he tells him in sailor talk what he has to do to untie the ropes <laughs> and then he just kind of dumbs it down and says spencer like, understands ties ropes from things <laughs> right and, and i mean I, yeah he that's just kind of he's just like he's just an old piece of beef jerky you know that spits blood well and it was really important that that it was spelled out to us as an audience that if they went on a different ship that had like a whole crew of men and they're bringing alex that they're just going to throw you overboard and do whatever they want with her and so it was like oh my god like they're as serious oh, yeah, the guy, the guy says, are you here. crazy yeah <laughs> that's what he says so the then so then finding this old sea captain is like you know what a thankful thing to not be worried about that when they're left on the deck and luca goes up into the pilot house and she she looks at him uh alex looks at spencer and she's she's grousing to herself she's like there's no safety briefing uh, what we call oh, a muster yeah. station on a boat yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no toast to the god of the seas <laughs> <laughs> Made me laugh. Made me laugh. but again 
I mean, what did I say two seconds ago? Yeah. People could think she's just a princess and has no capabilities and isn't is just going to be the girl he's always trying to not have her break a nail. And and that that a hundred percent exists that relationship of her being like Shelley Long that he has to like put on his shoulder and not get dirt on her shoes. I'm thinking a la Troop Beverly Hills. <laughs> she could be that, but she's not. You know, she's absolutely willing to get her hands dirty. And uh, I'm glad they they made her a more well-rounded character. Do you like me bringing a little Troop Beverly Hills? I do. I I actually love that movie. (laughs) I know you do. It shaped my entire view of camping, and I agree with it. I endorse it. (laughs) Room service at a fancy hotel and calling it camping. If you ask Tom, uh, growing up, uh, I could say it's that because it's no longer a valid safe word, so I can reveal this on a podcast recording. a safe word? I had told Tom that if there was ever some kind of, like, I'm on one side of a door and he's on another, and, and he wasn't sure if it was me, ask, where do we camp? The answer was in our living room with snacks and TV. <laughs> that was the acceptable answer about where these two Caputo boys camp. And anyone else would say like the woods or whatever. That was an right. imposter. Our safe word them. was yes. We would camp. Like we had that. we had sleeping bags and we we had lanterns and we had mm. the floor. We didn't sleep on the couch. We roughed it on the, the floor. Floor. And we would watch TV <laughs> and eat marshmallows and s'mores and and make oh my and god. Stuff. Have yeah. you ever seen that one? There's like a little. There's a video of a kid doing that and the and the woman on the other side says, "I'm your mom's friend." And then the little kid goes. That that can't be true. My mom doesn't have friends. <laughs> uh, that could also be a good safe word for me, too. <laughs> it's it's very similar, actually. Let's talk about Luca and ghost ships. This is how we get the, the title of tonight's episode. Ghost which... ships are crazy. Uh, Did you know much mo- much about a ghost ship b- before nope. this episode? Nope. But if you had asked me, I would have said that they were not real. Is there something about Pirates of the Caribbean or anything that is about... Yeah, Barbosa's ship is actually ship? a ghost ship, as it turns out. They're like an undead crew. See? As it turns out. Look at me. I didn't even see that movie. So the Zabrina is a real ship. The story that Luca tells is a, is a 100% real story. Hold on a minute. You're not even going to acknowledge that I just figured out a ghost ship in a movie I didn't ever see, and I didn't even know ghost ships were real? I'm impressed that you You're made that connection. I didn't, I didn't make that connection, so I'm super <laughs> impressed that you did. Thank you. I need praise. The Sabrina left Falmouth, England uh, on September 15th, 1917. It had a cargo of coal. It was destined for St. Brook in France. Two days later, the Sabrina was found ashore. It ran aground near Cherbourg, France, way up the coast from where it was supposed to be. No damage to the boat. The log book was still on the ship, which pirates would take over a ship. They often took the log book as proof that they were the ones who did it as like a trophy. Um, the, the boat was in complete fine condition. It would actually end up running. It was in service for like another 30 years after this event. There was no damage to the Sabrina. The only thing was its entire crew missing. No word from them no clue as to where they may have gone just and in just two days it, it wasn't out to sea forever it was just Very two days from when it left town of them huh yeah and so lots of theories persisted over the years maybe it was a u-boat because uh the german u-boats the submarines that the uh that the germans were using in world war one were infamous for sinking ships but they didn't often take prisoners so it would have been weird for a u-boat to have surfaced taken hold of the ship hostages put them in the u-boat which were not modern submarines by any stretch of the imagination. So very weird. 
so strange. So the ghost ship of the Sabrina is a very real ship. The story that they tell here, the reason this becomes important is because Luca, after he makes his Whitman's baked beans for everyone, steers them out of the way of a ghost ship. But then at the end of the episode, another ghost ship is what they are about to run into that Spencer tries to get them out in front of and is not successful. Now, is that the same ghost ship as we see in the beginning of the episode? Maybe. I tried watching the angles as best as I could. There were some color differentiations, so but it did look like a one steam stack ship, which was what the first one was. It had a generally same shape from what I could tell. I think the idea was that it was supposed to be the same ship, because if you think about Luca's story uh, that he was relating as a ghost ship that he had run into. He actually made it sound much more like it was stalking him. Right, that it kept appearing out of nowhere. And, and, and both times, the ghost ship in this episode seemingly comes out of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. Luca sees it when he's making the beans and he gets out and it gets back up to the pilot house and turns them around. Spencer, because, and I want to ask you about this. So Luca is dead in the chair, the pool of blood under his under his mouth. His hand is on the throttle. My charitable reading was Luca, knowing he was dying, stopped the boat because the only other two people on the ship were sleeping downstairs. And if he had just left the boat going as he knew he was dying, he would have potentially put the ship into the tugboat into really mortal peril. So my charitable reading is that his hand was on the throttle and he slowed the boat to zero as he expired as to protect the tugboat. The other reading is that his hand was just on the throttle when he died and it pulled it down, literally pulled the throttle down to zero. And that's what caused the boat to stop moving. Do you have a view on that? Am I thinking about it way too much, which is totally possible? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that either of those things can be true. I think it could also be true that, you know, it the engines was so loud, you know, that when he did shut it off, that's basically what woke Spencer up was the silence. And another way is is like, yeah, you're right. He's not propelling forward then. But also it it should have sent, you know, sent a message to Spencer like, hey, shit's going down, you know, like. Yeah, I like that too. Maybe come check um, what's going on. But here's the deal. I mean, you can't really tell like how quick he died or what exactly was going on. Like, like you can imagine he had some big coughing fit. Right. There's a lot of blood on the floor. There's a lot right. of blood on the how floor. How did Spencer not hear that? You know, well, I mean, I the know ship engines still were running, while. though. You You're know. right. And those are loud. And, and I agree with you. I, I just, uh, I'm like, man. But there's nothing to, there's no way that I felt like Spencer could have saved that situation. And oh my God, when they actually show that gigantic ship pushing the, the tugboat. Wedge, is it? I, yeah. Yes. Oh my it God. Was kind of I was visceral. like, yeah. it was. I was like, how are you possibly getting and out of this you thing. know he almost does he even even when it so first close. even when it first pinches the ship up and and starts the wedge he throttles forward and is spinning the wheel he almost gets it out he comes really close to freeing the thing and i was like i i i dumbly stupidly allowed myself a moment of hope that he oh, was no. actually going to free it yeah 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 because because then they cut <laughs> away Aww. I know this is this is the problem with hope. This is the problem Aww. with hope. It lets you down, and and you feel worse than you did before. Because right. when it comes, and it feels foolish. I feel that they, stupid. No, just foolish. Just I feel foolish. foolish. Not, not and stupid. so when they come back, and we got to see the telegram, but then Kara voices over what Spencer wrote to her, and of course they cut back to the ship, and it looks so sad, capsized with its little oh red belly god. up in the air. Oh my god! No bubbles. No one floating, just the brother. Do you think they're going to somehow get out of that and somehow board the ghost ship? 
No, the ghost ship is gone. That's why it's a ghost ship. See, the, look, watch the camera again, because, uh, and I think this is very yeah, intentional. It might come back around again. You don't know. No, it, it did its work. I, I think the the ghost ship is malice. The ghost ship is <gasps> malevolent. The no. ghost ship did what it did. Yeah, I think the ghost ship's point is just to make it's other evil? ghost ships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's meant to embody <laughs> evil. It it did uh, it, its, it's work. It's chaotic evil yes it's chaotic evil instead of chaotic neutral or chaotic good um because when the camera pulls out into the wider ocean shot there's no trace of the ghost ship the ghost ship is gone the ghost ship had done its work we're not going to see the ghost ship again if there is salvation here it comes down to think back when they were in the pilot house or when spencer's in the pilot house he calls the mayday which thank god he had asked what the frequency was for the mayday Mm mm-hmm Fun fact about the Mayday signal that he tells them. So Lucas says the Mayday frequency is 158.6 megahertz. In fact, the real short-term maritime uh, distressed frequency signal, I did a little research on this, there are several, but the channel, a channel that is used for short boat-to-boat Mayday signals is 156.8 so I think they had a little fun on the show. They took 156.8 and made it 158.6 in the show Ooh, to have a little bit of fun with the Mayday signal. flippage there. Oh, huh? Yeah, because maybe there's actually things that you can't, like, publish, like, maritime or, codes or right. you just you receive them. people out there Maydaying uh, all right, over the place. on it. Right, right, right. Just to be but, silly. But, uh, but silly he, Maydays, he, if you will. Spencer does make contact with a man, uh, with a captain on the ship. The question is, did he give him enough information about their heading and where they were in order for this captain to find them? And if they have salvation in in their cards, it's going to be this captain that he was talking to and that captain's ship, I think, that finds them. Why do I say all of that? Yeah, why do you say all that? Uh, If you don't want potential spoilers that are not rooted in anything, fast forward about 30 seconds. What does that mean? Okay. So there is a credit captain in this episode captain shipley captain shipley is played by a guy named molly who is benjamin stark in game of thrones so a decently well-known british actor i didn't yeah. see him in this episode at all mm. i in the couple of times that we saw a captain i didn't see a captain shipley and i didn't hear that name mentioned and also future episodes have a captain shipley credited mm. So I think the Captain Shipley is, we got to hear his voice in this episode, but we will meet the Captain Shipley at some point in the future that will be the one that saves them. Gasp. End of the spoiler speculation that's based on just (laughs) reading credits. Welcome back, those who did not want to hear it. Oh, we talked about you guys. It was all good stuff. We were were just saying good things. All the good things. Right. How sweet you are. How wonderful listeners are. But I I love that the show pulled out, though, and showed the capsized boat with the larger ocean around it, because I think they intentionally do that to show the ghost ship is not hanging around. The ghost ship is not there. Oh, right. With that. I mean, you've already said it. I still think somehow they could get a little action of ghost ship. Maybe it comes spooking around on them again. I don't know. Some, uh, Some more fun facts about maritime stuff in the 1920s uh the ship that they board uh to send the telegram is the rms mauritania the mauritania was a real ship the problem was the mauritania was an england to usa usa back to england transatlantic ship from everything i could find about the mauritania all through its life it never ran to africa it never made runs to africa it was purely a transatlantic ship in fact it was actually a sister ship to the lusitania and students of history will remember the lusitania was a ship sunk by german u-boats in 1915 who suspected of it carrying weapons for Europe from America and sank the Lusitania, even though 
by all accounts, that it, w- it was just a passenger line. Maybe it did have weapons. I don't know if that was ever determined, but it was sunk by German U-boats. The Lusitania was the sister ship to the Mauritania, which is the ship that they board to send the telegram in this episode, which again, from everything I could find, never actually sailed out of Africa at any point in its uh, in its history. Uh, it would have been good, though, because uh, to use It would have been good, though? Well, it would have been good to use the Mauritania because for 20 years, the Mauritania actually held the speed record for eastbound and westbound transatlantic crossings. It was literally the fastest ship in the seas for 20 years. That would have been great for these guys trying to get home to from, you know, from London. <laughs> right. The ship that they were going to get booked on in uh, when they go into the Union Castle line office, the uh, the RMS Franconia. The RMS Franconia was also a real line ocean liner, also operated by Conard Lines, which the Mauritania was, too. It was in commission from 1922 to 1956. Fun. It actually ran transatlantic in the summer, but in the winter which would have been deemed when they were in the show, the Franconia made world cruises. It did world cruises stops. So I couldn't find an itinerary, but then it becomes plausible on a world cruise uh, itinerary that it would make a stop in Africa. So look at that. So look at That's that. That's some good researching, you little bookworm. Uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was pretty happy <laughs> with myself. Look at you, hitting the library. So the Union Castle line, and last thing I'm going to say about this, the Union Castle line, which is the office that they, that they see when they first get off the boat in the beginning of the episode. In 1922, the Union Castle line introduced a round Africa service, which was a nine-week voyage calling at 20 ports en route. Alternate sailings traveled out via the Suez Canal and out via West Africa. So that's why, why weren't they always selling out of the Suez Canal? Why did they have to wait three weeks for a ship? Because by 1922, they were running ships out of West Africa and Suez Canal alternating. Ah, uh, we were in the alternate week. Yes, because the whole thing is that they are, because they are on the east coast of Africa, which is the Indian Ocean. Right, if you can right. see the geography in your head, I can. geography goes north, you go Indian Ocean into the Arabian Sea. The Arabian Sea, you kind of make a left around a little point on the African coast, and that takes you into the Gulf of Aden. And the Gulf of Aden leads you into the Red Sea from the Bible. Uh, The Red Sea leads you up to the Suez Canal, which goes from the city of Suez in the south to Port Said in the north. It's like a hundred mile canal. And when you get out of the canal in the north in Port Said, you are in the Mediterranean Sea. So that was that's how you get to the Mediterranean Sea, which then gives you access to Italy, Greece, Spain and all parts of Europe. If you guys are ever in a time machine and you go way, way back to 1923, just remember this podcast. Mike will help you traverse all the oceans. <laughs> it's, the, it's the seven seas. I'm just I'm just giving you some dropping some geographical knowledge. You said and some... the Red Sea from the Bible. <laughs> You're like, as featured in such things as the Bible. Well, that's the that's the sea that Moses allegedly parted was the Red yeah, Sea. Yeah, we know. We yeah. all know yeah. about the Moses. Charles Heston going. Arr. Right. Good old Chuck. Anyway. Chucky H is what I always called him. Man, what an adventure with uh, Alex and Spencer in Africa. But we're not oh, done yet. We're we almost done. Like, but I feel like we should say like a little like, okay, like get out of there, you guys. Like, let's think some happy thoughts for them because it is cold. They're in the ocean. They've been capsized. They've been thrown around. We don't even know what kind of injuries they might have. Let's just think really good thoughts. Because they're so underwater and there's no like gaps, it probably created some level of room to breathe 
in oh, the you're going with air boat. bubble. I'm going, you're going with, with air, air bubble. bubble. I'm going with I'm going with room to breathe air bubbles. Okay, so that means that we should be predicting scenes where their faces are turned upwards. Yes, noses pressed against the upside down floors. Yes, yes with like the <gasps> and because they were in different places, he makes a daring swim to join her <gasps> below decks so they can either live together or die together. Oh wow, how romantic! How romantic, romantic in a Titanic kind of sense. Right, exactly. We're hitting all of the famous How ships. How many people can fit on that door? I Apparently, James Cameron just finally admitted that Jack could have survived on the door after denying it for years. He I really think, did. I think, I think he just did, like, just like last week, uh, said, in fact, Jack could have probably survived on the door. So Wow. Yeah. That's quite an admission. We've all known it. We've all known it. I know. I watched Way that movie go. three times in the movie theaters. Cameron. <laughs> I, I saw that movie three times on the big screen. You so, did. I did. I did. I used to make the audiences uh, laugh because I was desperate for attention and validation as a kid. And, what is uh, wrong with you? When it would be silent and there was like a really like a like a sweet scene, I would I would call out Leo. Oh, and it would oh make everyone God, laugh. You're such a little weirdo. No, I was such a little weirdo. <laughs> Guys, the theaters were packed. There were not a seat to be had in Titanic in nineteen. You're like so. up in the balcony dropping raisinets in people's hair. No, I was just making it more of an interactive thing. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> There is no judgment. I'm just giggling to myself. Don't let my jovial nature bother your sullen ways. You know who woke up to having a bad day? Oh, shit. I, I don't know if I'm ready to go there. Are we, we have ready to. We, to ha- go? we have know, to have these conversations. I know we, we have to. Because we are already but... at like two hours and 20 minutes. Okay, but <laughs> listen to me. Listen to me. Listen, listeners. Linda, listen. I can't. Listen stand abuse scenes so we are going to be very light on the actual abuse portion and we're going to get a lot into the the portion of actually finding some help okay yes now i've set the guidelines you you guys all watched the scene it was it It was was vicious it was visceral it was brutal i think of all the scenes we've seen i think it was actually the most violent scene we have seen what he does to boxby boxputi boxputi i'm gonna go with boxputi her, Tiona's that, cousin. What she does to the girl. Yes. To, well, she's a young woman. So let's say Tiona's cousin. I think she gets the most vicious beating of anyone on the show. And Renat is just all anger. He's angry he that she will. He's angry at first because she won't tell him. And then when she does tell him, he doesn't believe her and beats her more because Uh -uh. the idea that Tiona would go out with no plan to trust 400 miles through the Badlands makes no sense to him. He's just he's just the very worst. You understand why the nuns are as bad as they are, because it's all flowing from this monster. We did not get to see Tiona was not done making war at the end of last episode, as it turned out, because after she brutally kills deservedly so sister mary we learned this episode she went and i believe it's the ruler she burned sister mary's face with plunged that into sister alice the uh pedophile rapist uh plunged the ruler in her chest stabbing her to death tiona made war and her two her main two violators um are now dead we don't have to focus on that more other than i would note that we got to see the scene from the trailer but there's two scenes from the trailer we actually saw this episode one is when donald woodfield introduces himself to Kara. that is a scene from the original long trailer right before the series started and the other one is watching father renaud and the priests and the nuns walking shoulder to shoulder doing a field search which is what we predicted from the trailer it was a field search and it was they find tracks he turns to his priests like they're cowboys and say i know bring her back to me what? you what? said cowboys i say 
henchmen. Well, not yes, like but, they're but, his cowboys. They're his evil henchmen, and that is exactly how they do it. Right, but the priests on what in their cassocks are going to go jump on a horse and start riding through. I mean, that's just a silly visual. I think they were absolutely about to go. Oh, I, I think that's what they did because we actually hear when we cut yeah. to Tiona, she hears horse uh, horse hoofs in the distance and she like hides hooves and hides from that she survives she outwits the priest she outwits a wolf i love that she screamed at it genius hey, how smart to like drag the the bush branch behind her to try to cover up some tracks good on you girl uh yeah well and also to use it as because the wolf couldn't get through like the thistle on it yeah smart v- very smart very smart even though it does look like she's still carrying around her sack of bibles yeah, smart. She could whoop him with that. Uh, yeah, I guess. But also, as far as like being light and mobile, I don't know. The big old stack of sack of Bibles feels like maybe an unnecessary thing. But but I guess she could have used it to try and fight the wolf. She falls asleep on top of the hoodoo, which is what that those formations are called in the Badlands. Those structures that really is what the Badlands looks like. They're crazy. But you can when you read about them, it's basically like you're basically seeing the history of the earth in the badlands because of the way the erosion has left those structures yeah it's crazy it's crazy that that's like it really exists on earth teddy roosevelt to be like a bucket list kind of thing huh yeah for sure it's it's encaptured now in the teddy roosevelt national park i believe and Mm. i think it's teddy is quoted with saying when you see the the structures in the badlands it's like if you're seeing something that doesn't actually exist on earth and that's exactly what it looked like and when i watched it i was like i've got to i've got to figure that out but uh yeah if you you pull up pictures of the badlands you see these kind same kinds of structures from erosion i was so relieved and so grateful and then cautiously optimistic that she finds this man who could possibly help i was like please lord god please do not let this man be messed up in some way that is going to do anything other than just help her because you know this is my absolute most horrible betrayal fear the fact that he recognized her family name and knew her father and so just to connect dots here he mentions your father is run runs with horse we met runs with horse in the episode in the second episode of 1923 runs with horse is the native american that zane gives all of the sheep to Mm-hmm. I checked the credits. Which we predicted this, Which we right? Predicted. That we, we were going to start seeing some some amount of of uh, goodwill towards towards the the people on the reservation from the Duttons, and that somehow this was going to come back in a good way. These are the sheep that Zane and the Duttons gave to the Res that they can't keep on the Res out of fear of the government seizing them. So you have Hank out here keeping the sheep in a no man's land where they're un- not under the gaze of the government. These are Banner sheep, which I thought was a great connecting of the dots. People have been saying and asking, how does this Native American girl connect to the story? Because they don't pay attention to details and they don't listen to this podcast. No kidding. Are they really saying that? Yeah, it's, it's super annoying. It drives wow. me crazy. I just want to throw my phone across the <laughs> I'm anyway. so I'm so happy we have such smart listeners who totally get this. We totally get it. But this connects dots in a very real way. These are banner sheep via the Duttons that we are seeing in this episode. We are connected dots. Now, I think there are distance issues here that don't make a whole lot of sense from where the Badlands are and where they are in North Dakota to where Paradise Valley is in Montana. Seems a little too far that Tiona traveled that far west or that... 
Hank and the sheep are hanging out so far east of where the reservation is. I don't know that I really buy that, but let's suspend belief with the geography and just connect that these these are these are Dutton sheep now, Banner Dutton sheep that we're seeing in this episode. This is connecting the Rainwater storyline to the Dutton storyline. I want to play a clip of Hank, uh, where Hank and Tiona talk about the plan. I killed the nun who beat me and killed the nun who raped me. Now they're gonna come and kill me. You beat up, choked one and stabbed the other. They did this. Let's say they had it coming. You come home with me. I'll send word to your father. You should go to Canada. No, Canada. Canada's worse. First we find your father. That might be the first time in like modern TV that I feel like I've heard the the line Canada's worse. Yeah, maybe sit up though. But we talked about the resident schools. We have and and, and how much that the Canadian government did. We didn't go into great detail, but you guys can go look on your own. Why is the Canadian government worse during this time? Go take a look. So not included in there is a great line. And I wish I, it was a very long clip. That's why I had to cut it down. She says, you're not near the res. Uh, And he said, Hank says, we're not near anything. And she says, why, you know, why do you have the sheep out here? And he's like, that's why. So they're not on the res. So the government can't take them. She says, why would the government want to take the sheep? And Hank just looks at her and says, why would they want to take you? Uh, Just a powerful line. Just a really. Very. A line that we should all stop and think about, guys. Like, what? Some people having real problems with this, and we get it. It's abuse. I read a comment that infuriated me on the Reddit for 1923 about this. The tone of it was essentially, "Yeah, I get it. She's having a hard time. You know, what is is this boring subplot to the story? It doesn't have anything to do with it. What the fuck is wrong with you? Like, are you so ignorant and blind to the history of this country that she's just having a hard time?" I would that, that terrifies me that that person is walking around with that with that thought. Well, and and you know there are and that and we discussed this though very thoroughly and I'll just give it like two three sentences. Will a storyline like this that shows a great deal of abuse and that is very hard to watch is it going to turn off viewers and people who cannot even connect that rainwater goes with rainwater? That's because they're not watching like we were saying mainstream Yellowstone, right? Like they're not watching that one. So if you're not watching modern day Yellowstone, then you're not making any rainwater connections here. So then you could see where this is like really feeling like, why are you subjecting us to essentially this like trauma porn where we have to just watch day in and day out every time, you know, Tiona taking this beating. It's like, I can't watch that very long, but I 
as much as I hate abuse being used as any type of entertainment tool, this is really important to the narrative. And this is really important to understanding the foundation of the relationships between the Duttons, the people on the res, the Rainwaters. Like, this is very important. So if you're a listener who has not watched Yellowstone yet, then please just trust Mike and I when we say these people do come into play. They do matter. It is all woven in. And it is important to understand their origin story. And so that's what we're getting. And so for a lot of us, this is actually filling in the gaps, you know, of like, why, what, what are the rainwaters have to do with the Duttons? Well, we're getting that backstory, but you can see if people are coming in cold, Even this would be are, like, though. what am I, what exactly am I watching? I agree with you. I mean, Even but cold, they haven't uh, shown is... that much of what the connection of she, what she is to them yet. Sure. Of course. And in this episode, this episode that she finally says her own name of rainwater. And now you can connect it to the grandmother who had rainwater on her birth certificate. So that does make a firm connection now that she is really a rainwater, even though we've known that. But even if you're coming to this cold, appreciate that this is telling a story about something that really happened not too long ago in our own country. A really horrible thing that existed and was abused. This is not the Trail of Tears, which is a horrible thing, but that, you know, 200 plus years ago. This is something that happened within lifetimes of people that you know and love were alive when these girls were being abused out in these residential schools. This is not ancient history. This is this is recent history. The re- last resident there are residential schools that are still open. The last abuse of residential schools closed after the 2000s. 9/11 had occurred before the last of the residential schools mostly closed. This is not ancient history. Not even a little bit. They're still just finding the the grave sites. Just last year. Just yeah. last, last I year. I mean, so and and you know what really struck me actually. Speaking of the grave sites, when they're burying the nuns, and you saw all those other crosses, surely those aren't other clergy people. So how many of these children have been killed already? Already, when you can tell that this is a, obviously a new structure and a new space here. You know, it made me wonder: is that really the nun that's in that sack that they're building that hole, or? was it her cousin that was in oh that shit do you think well i guess probably you're the, right the graves the unmarked grave sites because those were just wooden crosses stitched up together they didn't have like grave oh, barely at them. all even yeah they were just sticks and the the graves that are being found in canada just last year as recently were essentially mass graves mass poorly unmarked mass graves of young people that were found I think maybe it occurred to me after I watched the episode a couple times that maybe this is actually Babuxi. That's horrible. I hadn't even considered that. I really, I really was thinking that they were burying the nuns and they, and we were supposed to pick up on the fact that there was multiple crosses. Like obviously, there's been quite a bit of death actually at this place. Until Tiona, though, I don't think most of the death was probably on the nun side. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think any of those were clergy. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, I didn't, I, you know, it, and it seems pretty new there, meaning like this wasn't like a generation of people have been buried there like our Duttons. This is like, uh, how many people die a week here, you know? Yeah, this is just uh, normal attrition for Father Renaud and his uh, nuns. Uh, what do I, before we, before we leave this, because we're just about done, I do want to play one fun clip that made me laugh just to palate cleanse a little bit. <laughs> 
before she goes and, and Lena Robinson plays the cousin here. She, and I keep butchering names. So I don't want to say it, but I, I want to give her credit here. She didn't have a ton to do in the show, but if this is the last time we get to see her, I like that she went with grit in her voice and in a little, a little spice in her voice. When she looks up and her whole demeanor's changed, she says, I am Otter of the Kills Many Clan. My cousin will get home and then the Kills Many Clan will come back here and kill you all. I like that. I like that in the face of whatever was about to happen to her, she also got the iron in her spine. This was a great episode for women and the iron in their spine. And I like tied to the chair, bloodied mouth. She looked up to him and said, fuck you. I'm not going to take your bullshit anymore. My cousin will get home and you are a dead man. I also like that her nickname was uh, that her name was Otter. Because otters are adorable. And <laughs> the Killsman clan, which I couldn't find any evidence of, and it's not the name of a tribe, it's, she says clan. I'm curious what that all is. Do you think we're going to be seeing the Killsmany clan? Do you think Do you think there's going to be a date with Violent Destiny for Father Renaud and his... Uh, and oh, his I pray Marauders? for that come up. It's, I mean, I, I need that to happen because for me, that like closes the abuse circle and it allows it to stay in the TV. Like, Renard can't exist at the end of the story he can't hurt anyone right he he needs to not exist once the story is done so that it can just i can close my eyes at night you know i give them a lot of credit for allowing this to be as gritty and and really visceral as it all was for the people who can't take it at all and like wish it wasn't even a part of the storyline that's really what who this storyline is for because you and i already knew actually quite a bit of the history of some of these residential schools but i don't think that we're in any way the majority of people i think most people have no idea what this is about it's going to require a little bit of looking though because it's because it makes it seem so like isolated and unique that only that one liner of Canada is worse is the only clue in you get to like go look this up like there's a lot of other stuff this is this is a systematic you know institutionalized version of genocide that you're seeing and you have to really listen and pay attention that it's not just this one structure in the middle of North Dakota that this is so much bigger than all that and I really encourage all you guys to go do your research I know that Mike has told you guys a lot but and we will continue to try to try to give you guys more information but this is important and I hope that those people on Reddit will maybe pick up a podcast <laughs> and then kind of understand that like this is not just thrown in there to just you know unnerve you every week don't get indignant don't think why you got to put this stuff in here when you don't know the history right. <laughs> you know also, like, not it's blaming like, you right it's not an attack on you the, the show is but don't going assume out of that they just to, threw uh, something right. in there some storyline that was just nonsense it just has nothing to do with anything like do you think you're smarter than the storytellers right now right right, right exactly <laughs> exactly it's it's uh there's an example actually in your honor which has been driving me crazy people are like that dumb prison rodeo scene that's some bullshit why would you even do that it's because prison rodeos are a real thing and it's fucking weird and it's sick yeah. and that's why it's in there it's not in there because some weirdo imagination it's because it's a real fucking thing you could go watch in april down right. in louisiana that's why it's in that episode of your honor it's it, the more weird and the more like outside of their familiar information whatever they have of what they think is like the history of our country or what what they think goes on around us who would think that prison rodeos go on where inmates are actually like out there getting like gored by bulls 
Probably very few citizens realize that's a real thing, but it is. If two and a half hour episodes of uh, 1923 coverage isn't enough for you, go subscribe to Tales from Yaya's, our dedicated after show podcast for your honor, where we also talk for over two hours on episodes. But you'd love it. And it's so much fun. And it's such a good mystery and twisty turny stuff. It is. It is. All right. Let's palate cleanse this before we take this into our landing, because Hank <laughs> made me laugh in this episode. Hank was my savior. Uh, played by Michael Gray Eyes. Uh, this is his first appearance in the show. But listen to Hank explain how he chose Hank, because Tiona asked him, Hank, why Hank? Hank. Who are Hank. Why Hank? And they made us choose names. Everybody was choosing George, Jim. Nobody was choosing Hank. So I chose it. The way he shifts into a Midwestern accent... Everyone chose George or Jim. Not Hank. So I took Hank. Uh, it just made me laugh. It was just so sweet and innocent. And because he's like all like speaking it's in that. fact, right? It's well, just he's, he's fact. speaking in this like this, this proud Native American language. And then he's just like, George, Jim, hey, you know, just like real, like he could be offering me like cheese curds. Like, That's you know, funny. I, you know what? I'm, I feel like I want to get a tattoo that says like, thank God for Hanks because man, oh, Hank, thank you. I please, please in the next episode, do not be a pedophile. Do not be a betrayer. Do not be, don't try to make her your wife. Don't try to do anything freaking weird, Hank. Okay. Please just help her find her dad. I was really worried about Be it, a good guy. Uh, saying that he knows her father, that there was name recognition there, that he is of that same res, made me feel better that it's not going to end up being a betrayal because I had really been Much concerned. Better. I had Much been better. really concerned like that was exactly what this was. This, is, this cycle was going to start all over again. Though, I guess they do need to move it forward, right? She does need to get... She has her own destiny of sorts. Rainwaters have their own destiny of sorts. She does need to get back to Montana. She so, does need get back. <laughs> she does need to get back to Montana. Yeah, no, entirely. And, and we do understand the residential school at this point, And we do understand the threat that they pose. And it was important to have Hank say, it's the first place they're going to go look for you is the res. Like, let's go find your dad. Let's figure this out. Like, he understood. The thing that makes me worried about old Hank is that he did choose a new name and he did introduce himself with his american name i don't know what to call it his hank name his well, white gives, person he name. gives he gives both though right he says it's like hank one beak so he gives like his full name that's true but but do you see the, that's where my nervousness comes in only to the part where i'm like i don't think he is my heart is saying he's not someone who would like turn her in for a ransom or do something like that but i but i am nervous because he has gone along with what you know changing his name and he introduced himself with the changed name not his native american name so it i don't it makes me a little worried because it kind of a little tips his hand that he's a little bit doing what you know you get what i'm saying right I understand, but we have to have good thoughts. Good thoughts. I'm wanting to have only good thoughts about Hank. Only good thoughts. Before we go here, you may have noticed this episode was dedicated to the memory of Derek Chavez. Derek Chavez was a production supervisor on 1923. He had a long career. He, he worked on a lot of different shows. Quick round on what do we think happens next week? You Do you think we're going to get a time jump next week yeah, that, that pushes Elizabeth maybe very pregnant going forward? 
I do, because they're willing to do stuff that's not on camera. I mean, she killed Sister Alice, not on camera. Like, so I Man, think I was that super they're... happy for that, too. I wonder if that was meant to be a, a wonderful surprise for the viewers. <laughs> I kind of wonder, too. But, you know, so if we see them, you know, getting yanked onto the ship by, you know, Commander, what is his name? Captain uh, Cap- Shipley? Captain Shipley? His yeah. name's actually Captain Shipley. I mean, that's what he's credited as. Yeah. I am the captain of the ship. I'm Captain Shipley. How very Shipley of me. <laughs> How funny. I would be okay with a cold open of them getting maybe drug onto a ship that then morphs into, turns out we're already almost to spring. Like the, the you know, snow's melting. She's, you know, Elizabeth's three, three months more pregnant. She's showing now, you know, those types of things. Things are moving forward because if we don't do that, then it's, then we're really going to wait all the way till episode eight, I would think, before the bad guys come. You know what I mean? Like, we almost have to get to the finale then. Yeah, it almost feels increasingly like, unless they rush it, we can't have the big war of Spencer versus Whitfield and the Banners. But maybe is that season two? But yeah, maybe. Maybe the start of it is what eight is. It's the beginning So then is it it. possible that six, seven, eight is just getting through the winter and getting to the point of Spencer being home and not too much more? You know when we're going to have a better idea? Next week. Next week. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Yellowstone Podcast 1923 edition. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could, please leave us a five-star review. It helps in promotion of the show. It helps other people find the show. And it helps Apple and Spotify promote the show. And if you leave us a five-star review, we'll read it on air like this wonderful one that we received just this last week. We've actually gotten a really uh, a nice uh, couple of reviews I'm going to read over the next couple episodes. This one is from Missy Parrish. Great deep dive. Five stars. I love how much passion these two have for Yellowstone family in 1923. They go on major deep dives every week. They are funny and so engaging. They do historical research, trivia that ties back to the show, and occasional current pop culture references. Highly recommended as a companion to the show. Well, Missy Parrish, we really love it. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you writing. I give Missy five stars. I give Missy five, I was going to say five <laughs> Yellowstone brands, because there was talk about oh, brands. Oh, okay. Big yellows. Big, big yellow big, 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 big Five big whys. <laughs> five big whys. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.